With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. It is February 12, 2017, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We have Condor Keeper Roundtable tonight with Joe Janovitz, Mark Huffman, and John Irby. And, of course, my sidekick, Bill Stagel. Bill, how are you, my friend? Hi, buddy. I'm doing great. How about you? Hey, I'm doing fantastic. Um, you had some summer weather yesterday? <laughs> I would say so. Uh, thank God for global warming. It was 85 degrees here yesterday. Uh, so basically just, you know, when it's summer in February, hang out by the pool, drink some margaritas, and just uh, thank goodness you're not in the Midwest somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. What about you? So uh, Temps there? Yeah, we had a... We had a spring day. No summer day for us yesterday, but a spring day. Well, that'll work. Yeah, absolutely. You um, had to have snow? Snow on the ground? Uh, it's gone. Wow. No okay. white stuff. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm happy with that. Um, you know, I, I like a mild I like a mild winter. Um, you know, I'm calling this the spring vortex as opposed to the Arctic vortex, um, and I'm happy with it. Right. All right. Well, you uh, probably know that I'm, I've kind of been in the dark lately. I've been on a Facebook and social media hiatus. You knew that, right? Yes. Yes, that was my New Year's resolution, 30 days off of social media. Um <clears throat> It's it was hard the first couple of days because you know that's just when I'm bored or when I don't have anything to do I just you know get on the get on my phone click on that Facebook icon and just you know see what's going on um, but I found that I was just like I was just doing that all the time and right. um, so I said hey you know just take a 30 day hiatus and it's been great uh, I don't regret it a bit um, I would recommend doing that to anybody. It feels like they're kind of just, you know, 
addicted is not the right word, but just they, they, you know, I felt like I was just overly committing myself to social media and, um, you know, so take that time off. I, I haven't missed it. I will be back next weekend. Uh, that'll be good. It'll coincide with the Arlington NARBC show. Um, so yeah, I'll get back out there and, uh, touch base with some of the people that have probably thought I've fallen off the edge of the earth, but I haven't, I'm still here. Right. Yeah, I don't think you've missed much. <laughs> I have a couple of people that have kept me tuned into a couple of things going on, but you know what? It hasn't been earth-shattering. Right. So is it just Facebook that you're off of, or is it like you're not on the MVF or anything like that as well? No, or? no I, I've I've got on the MVF a couple times and um, looked at posts there. You know, made a couple posts, couple replies. Uh, we'll go through a little bit of the MVF news here in a minute. I haven't seen a whole lot of earth-shattering stuff there in the last uh, month or six weeks. Have you? No. Yeah. Nope. All the stuff. I mean, most of the stuff I've seen there has been good news. Um, I think Matt yeah. Morris posted yesterday or today. He's got an Aru clutch on the ground. Fantastic for him. I'm, he's my He's my brother three hours south of here in Austin, Texas. And uh right. I, I think he uh, I think he struck out last year producing chondros, which is unusual unusual from Matt. Um any anytime we have a bad chondro or a bad snake breeding season, I just blame it on the weather. You know, it certainly isn't anything yeah. that we're we're responsible for as keep you know, keepers and breeders. I mean we're you know, we do everything perfect. Uh but it's the weather. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm, he, I'm with good, you. Good I'm for following him. you. Right. Well, right. Good. Good for him. They, yeah. I'm. I'm happy of, for him. Go. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of a ruse, let's talk about our sponsor. Yes. Yeah. So GTP Keeper Radio tonight is being brought to you by Aru Condro Fan. Their website is arucondrofan.com, and they have a Facebook page, Aru Condro Fan. So they are dedicated to the Aru Green Tree Python in captivity. It's proper husbandry, beautiful pictures, keepers, and related news. Morelia viridis Aru. It's all we do. Please go over there and check out the site. If you have some Arus, post up pics. I know those guys really love to see them. And um, if you don't have any Arus, go over there and get your fix, and maybe uh, they can put you into contact with someone who might have some captive bred Aru types. You know, I'm sure uh, I'm sure Matt's a member of that. And you know, I was kind of thinking uh, the um, the the Aru specific locality types are only sponsor. I think we should hit up Gary. You know, I think we should hit up Gary. He's got deep pockets. You know, we need a we need a Manicori sponsor, and I think he's the perfect guy. Right, but you know, the downfall to Gary is you know we'll have to like probably have like a sand boa. Uh, you know, segment or, you know, something like that, you know, garter snake, you know, Uh, feeding, you know, stuff like that. Maybe it's not worth it. What was I thinking? That was stupid. I'm just going to hit him up for some money anyway. He won't be a sponsor. I'm just going to have him. I'm just going to have him send us about 500 bucks. Keep the show going. That'll be enough to pay for our heating bill. Yep. Yep. What else in the uh, MVF Condro news? 
Um, that's really, I mean, David D has some, um, yes, yes. He had yes. a blue line clutch. I mean, just his photograph quality alone should be enough for you to go over there and just take a look at him. I mean, that, uh, I mean, he has amazing snakes, which truly helps, uh, you know, his cause, but just the quality of the photographs, it's, you know, it's like the snake is in the room with you. So, um, if you haven't had a chance to pop over there and take a look at those see what's going on with his animals it's it's a uh, pretty spectacular and the photography is excellent yeah he's got some really really quality animals i'm i'm so happy for him that he's been successful i, I had the opportunity to visit with him he, he lives in colorado but he travels texas not infrequently and maybe a year a year 18 months ago or so he and his wife came down and um visited us and uh, came over and uh, checked out my room and uh, his wife uh, and Dave and myself and my wife went out and got dinner here locally. And he's, he's just a great guy. He's um, he's pretty much what you'd expect from a quality chondro keeper. You know, he's, he's, he's just a top notch guy. So I'm very happy that he's had success. And he's also the, uh, the guy that I got my, my rough scale pythons from. So that's right. He's into good stuff. Yeah. He's into good stuff. Very nice. You know, there was a post on the MVF. Uh Yeah, Bill. Well, I I was just going to say the other thing um, that I did not see on the MVF, and I'm sure he posted it on Facebook, and luckily we'll get a chance to talk to him tonight, is Joe Janovitz recently had a clutch. Um and uh, I, I don't know why we'll have to uh, bust his balls a little bit for, for not <laughs> posting that on the MVF. I'm sure he posted on Facebook. I wouldn't know because I'm on my hiatus, but uh, he did text me a picture uh, of the female and of the eggs. So, uh, yeah, we need to bust him up a little bit for that. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. But what I was going to mention, there was a post on there from a uh, uh, a member of the MVF and um, kind of intriguing post for me at least is that uh, he was kind of calling for some house cleaning over there on the MVF, get rid of some bad links, um, update some stuff, which, you know, I kind of look at it every once in a while and and kind of think the same thing, but there's also a lot of nostalgia on there as well. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of uh, who used to keep Condros that had websites and no, is no longer with us keeping Condros, but, um, I don't know. Kind of curious to see if that's going to spark any interest in uh, whether you know the, the Greg's going to get on there and actually uh, update some stuff or, or knock some stuff off. Yeah, I mean, um, excuse me, I'm distracted because my freaking cat is is crying like a little little baby. But yes, oh, uh, I'm sure whatever you just said was very important. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> hey, you know how we roll here. There's no secrets. That's right. That's right. That's why. That's why uh, Morelia Python Radio keeps bleeding all the profits down to us because <laughs> the quality of our show. <laughs> yeah, well, you get what you pay for, right? That's that is that is true. That is true. I mean, um, if you want if you want quality radio. You guys should be listening to Morelia Python Radio, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Entertainment factor, you come here. 
So uh, what do you think? We ready to bring these guys on? Let's do it. Okay. All right. So welcome, Joe Janowitz. Janowitz. I just butchered his name. Mark Huffman and John Irby to GTP Radio. Hey, thanks guys for having us. Going, buddy. Going, Bill. Yep. Pleasure to have you guys on. Yep. Looking forward to having my balls busted. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I I hope you knew that was coming. I mean, come on, Joe. Tell just tell me. Let's get it out in the open. Why didn't you post? Why didn't you post on the MVF that that incredibly that killer clutch? Well, uh, man, you know, for the same reason that I really don't post much on MVF at all. Um, laziness. Uh, it's, it just, it, it seems, it seems a hard format to post pictures, first of all, from a phone. Um, and yeah. you know, I, I figure that just about everybody who's on MVF, who's a regular on MVF, who, you know, the, the old timers and the new, uh, they're on Facebook too, on the, uh, the MVF Facebook page, uh, which is, uh, for me, worlds away easier to access and post photos. There's and, no doubt. No doubt. You know, and, and there there are dozens of Green Tree Python forums on on Facebook, and honestly, I the, the only forum that I posted these particular photos on was uh, was the MVF on Facebook, and it's it's I don't know it might have a little to do with loyalty or just nostalgia uh, because I. Used to be, you know, very uh, in tune to the MVF, but uh, I don't know. I guess that's all I got. Well, you know, we've talked about this before, and um, you know, the the dying of the forums as we've known them. I kind of grew up with the forums, um, and uh, you know, they're 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 all but dead right now. Really, the the MVF, to my knowledge, and maybe there's other. forums out there that are thriving but to me it's the only one that is is still even even remotely in existence and, and has uh some activity uh i i get what you're saying with the the facebook it's so easy to post there um you know but it's boy it's it's tough it's hard to watch that stuff i watch the big uh carpet um forum you know go down and uh boy it, it it's just it's hard to watch it but again, everybody who was on that carpet forum is on uh, one of the Facebook carpet python pages, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, Morelia pick of the I, week. Yeah, I would so say forth, you're right. right. I mean, I would say you're right. Yeah, yeah, most of them are. Um, but it's it's so you know those forums. The, the the gem, the gold about those forums is the archives and the search function. Uh, you know, if somebody Agreed. has a question. Yeah, you know, somebody has a question about neuro, the neuro issue in, in Jaguar carpets. Man, you just, you know, point them in the direction of the hundreds of discussions that, you know, that that detail that, as opposed to starting a brand new thread in, in a Facebook carpet page, you know? I do. And, it's, you know, it tends to be, you know, the, the same question or sometimes a similar question or thread over and over again. Um within, I don't know, what, a couple months ago, over the summer, I tried to use the search function on MVF, and it, it 
it just didn't work. It just it didn't lead you to anything at all. Uh, John, who's on the other line there. Um, hi, John. Hey, what's up, Jeff? He brought How up the point brother? that I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great. Thank you. Uh, he brought up the point that it's easier to Google search, you know, try to narrow down and Google search your question uh, or the topic that you want to look at, and the Google will direct you to MVF hmm. to find, you know, a page that has that discussion or that topic. Um, I see. So that I don't know. It just uh, you, there's no one to blame, and there's you know no solid reason for it. But uh, well, listen, I'm a, we obviously I know. You, you guys have a copy of our uh, kind of agenda for the evening. I want to introduce the other guests, and Joe, I want you to have a chance to um, introduce yourself. Um, but first, since we're talking about Facebook and we're talking about the MVS, MVF, Buddy and I always think it's important to introduce to our uh, listeners the places that we think it's the best place to find a, a, a chondro, a quality chondro. And we've already mentioned the MVF. The MVF classifieds to me is the gold standard to find a a, a new uh, chondro, whether you're a, a first-time chondro keeper or or an experienced uh, chondro person. I think the one thing that the MVF does better than Facebook could will ever be able to do is to police our own uh, our own people, so to speak. And so, my number one gold standard: if you're looking for a chondro, hit the MVF classifieds. Um, Joe, you mentioned the MVF Facebook page. That's a great place. Uh, we got the United, the, the U.S. Captive uh, Bread Chondro Classified, uh, and then there's a page on Facebook called Green Tree Pythons Sale, Trade, and Chat. All of those are good places. Um, you know, again, I think the most important thing is is that responsible members police those places, police ourselves. Um, you know. Uh, and, and again, Buddy and I are big proponents of producing uh, United States, uh, um, purchasing United States captive born and bred chondros. So I wanted to throw that out there. And then I think the next thing I uh, we would like to do is to have you guys introduce yourselves. Um, you know, just tell us a little bit about your life outside of chondros, uh, you know, where you live, what you do for a real job. Um, and so kind of in the roundtable format. John Irby, let's start with you. How are you, John? Hey, man. I'm doing great. Great. Thanks for joining um, us tonight. Yeah, no problem. I'm, I appreciate you asking me. So you, I well, guess what you want me to just, I can, yeah. you want me to just freestyle and tell a little bit about myself? Yeah, man. Yeah, give us, yeah, give us your spiel, whatever you think is pertinent. Well, yeah. Um, well, yeah, my name's John. I've uh, kept chondros probably... I was trying to think of it today in preparation for the show. I think I got my first chondro in 04 or 05. Um, I've had some off years, but uh, more on than off. Um, So I've got a six-year-old little girl. Uh, Her name is Vera. Uh, For my real job, I am a a sales representative, a sales consultant. Uh, I work in the aggregate industry. Um, basically, I jokingly tell people I sell rocks. Um, <laughs> yeah, so anyway, but it's for roads, bridges, you know, large-scale uh, 
construction materials. And so I live in northern Virginia. I used to be a Richmonder for a long time. And uh, just recently, in the last six months, me and my collection uh, just moved up to Alexandria, Virginia, right south of D.C. Okay, fantastic. Is your uh, is your daughter into into any of the animals at all, or it's a little too early, oh, yeah. or she's mm-hmm. into them? Oh no, she yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah. She's a she's a science kind of. You know, what I mean, you, you can nurture a child all you want, but you know, some girls are just a little a little more, I guess. Uh, not to use a, a cliche term, but a little more girly. And while she's sure. not a tomboy, she is a science geek girl, and uh, and just really likes bugs and dirt and snakes and you know, all of that kind of stuff. So awesome! You're lucky. Yeah, she's a she's a really good time. You know, she's a, she's a she's a fun kid to be around, and she's really intrigued, and you know, and <clears throat> she's just got that spark about it, and so it's a lot of fun. Uh, there's, I mean, there. When my kids were that age, uh, they were younger. There was nothing better than to spend time with them out there, um, exploring the animals. And one of my favorite things to do, and I don't know if you've ever done this, is I, I would take some animals up to their school, you know, once a year, and uh, you know, just do a little hokey show, you know, with different kind of uh, snakes and. And I don't know if you've done that, but man, it, it's a lot of fun. I, we would start typically with like their classroom but by the time 30 minutes later i'd have every teacher and and every kid in the sixth grade packed into into her classroom you know because they were all so so interested in the animals so if you haven't done that i'd I'd recommend it it's really fun that's cool mark huffman are you out there yep i'm here tell us a little bit about about mark huffman all right. Well, most of you guys don't probably haven't really talked to me that much. Uh, and there's a good reason for that. But uh, first off, oh, I appreciate that? you guys having me on. Sure, well, I haven't uh, haven't really been into the condo scene that long. Um, so I just uh, I just recently listened to the Rico Walder Memorial Show, and, and something that was brought up a lot during that discussion was the you know the generations of condo keepers and whatnot, and uh, you know, people were referring to themselves as second, third, and fourth generation. So um, right, right. I got into Condros in 2012. Um, I got my first condo, so I really haven't been into it that long. So I'm really not even sure why you guys you know, asked me to be on here because I don't have no, – I'm just playing. But, uh, <laughs> you know, definitely, uh, definitely still in the learning phase. Um, I'm still figuring a lot of things out. I still – everything I read and I see, I, I try and uh, – you know, think about it and see if, uh, see if I can implement it or if it would be beneficial to the way that I do things. And I'm still, you know, still always figuring things out. But, uh, but no, I was, uh, uh, born, raised in West Virginia. And, uh, in 2005, I left there, I joined the Marine Corps and, uh, I was in the Marine Corps until, until 2013, but I actually left active duty in 2010. So, you know, couldn't really keep any type of, uh, you know, snakes or anything weird like that. Just had a couple dogs. Uh, you know, I got married to my wife in 2006. We actually went through, you know, elementary school together and, and all the way through high school and whatnot. And, wow. You know, started, uh, started dating back in the 10th grade. So <laughs> we're still married now. Um, doing great. And uh, moved 
just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. We actually live in Swanee, so it's it's you know twenty thirty minute drive to get down into the city. And uh, moved here for work. I don't have any family here. Um, I I I do the same thing now that I did in the Marine Corps. Um, I'm a calibration technician. So I'm a, a big time geek. I basically uh, I measure any anything that you can. Uh, get a quantitative measurement out of that's that's what i do so anywhere from torque and pressure to temperature uh, electronics microwave frequencies you know so on and so forth pretty much a uh, kind of a jack of all trades in that line of work i don't really specialize in, in one particular thing i do primarily work in the, the repair divisions so i get all the really old crap that nobody wants to deal with and they send it my way and and i rack my brain for a few days and and don't make the company very much money and, and, you know, sometimes wonder how I still have a job, but Hey, I'm still employed. So it's all good. But, uh, yes. Well, Hey, um, Mark, I, I, I don't mean to interrupt you. Um, but I can't wait to talk to you a little bit about some, uh, temperature, um, issues in keeping chondros, um, you know, both incubation and just, uh, you know, your, uh, you know, what your thoughts on monitoring, you know, just, uh, ambient temperatures versus warm spots and all that. But before before we do that, I just wanted to you know tell you yeah, thank you for, sure. for serving our country. You know, in the Marine Corps. That oh, uh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I, no, I appreciate yeah, I think, uh, you know, appreciate yeah, you know of our listeners the same thing. And you know, buddy, I appreciate what you do, Bill. I even appreciate what you do. You know, uh, working with people that's a, a special gift that not everyone has. So a lot of different things that people have to offer. I see a lot of really good, you know. People, you know, serving uh, serving the world, keeping condos. So that's a great thing. But uh, it's, it is great. Yeah. It is a great thing. But uh, you know, serving your country to me, there's no greater, um, just for me personally, no greater honor than to serve your country. So, I, you know, again, thank you for that. Sure, agreed. So, uh, you know, living here outside of Atlanta. Um, I've always, I've always kind of had a knack for um, diving headfirst into things that, you know, probably a little bit over my head. And, and uh, you know, it started out with some king snakes and some boas and tarantulas and stuff like that. And I quickly, uh, you know, stumbled uh, across some, some probably some bad information because I wasn't on MVF. Uh, I don't even know, you know, where, where I first, you know, gained – you know, a lot of exposure to condos, but, uh, you know, I, I, I quickly decided that, you know, this was for me. I, I already was familiar with heat panels and, you know, herp stats and PVC enclosures and all that stuff. I'm like, you know, I got this, this is, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a shot. And I got my first condo, which was actually in a room and, you know, it's cool. You guys gave the shout out to a Rue condo fan. Um, nice. Pete's the guy that runs that great dude, you know, to, uh, you know, stand-up guy in my book, and uh, so I got my first first uh, condo from uh, Francis Gatton. Uh, absolutely beautiful critter. Had uh, tons of blue, just loaded with blue, and I was absolutely hooked from that point. So, uh, you know, it's kind of kind of downhill from there. I started uh, I started building my collection and learning, and I had uh, some crash courses with the, uh, you know. Uh, medical issues and whatnot, you know, you deal with your first RI or you deal with your first case of mouth rot and you deal with, 
you know, your first case of bad sheds and all that stuff, you know, and it just quickly kind yep. of got thrown into things. And, and uh, I was really, really fortunate. I I didn't even know at the time, but I, I contacted this great guy, Rocky Gravely. Turns out he's just 30 mm. minutes up the road from me. And wow. he's, been, uh, he's been, you know, pivotal in, you know, my keeping of chondras. So he's definitely, uh, you know, really showed me the ropes a lot. I mean, uh, even, you know, me and John, we, uh, John Irby, we talk a lot and, you know, he's, he's helped me out a lot. I had a lot of, a lot of really good help along the way, a lot of good stuff on MBF and everything else. So, um, anybody yeah, that's, that's that knows background. anybody that knows, uh, Condros knows, you know, knows the, the name Rocky, but I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think he's probably one of those guys that's on the MGF, but he's not on Facebook. Not much. No, I don't. I don't think he gets into social media too much. He's he's uh he stays very active and he's always you know out doing his cycling and that kind of stuff. So I just don't think he has a lot of time for it. So yeah. All right. Well, well, well. Very cool. Um, we'll maybe get back to your uh, to the overview of your collection here in a minute. But before we do, uh, Joe Janovitz, and I don't know which one of either myself or buddy is butchering his name more, but we'll let him pronounce his last name for us. Joe, what's up? <laughs> uh, not a whole lot. Thanks again. Thanks once more for having us on. Uh, it's Janovitz. You're yeah, you're saying it right. Okay. Janovitz, J-A-N-O-V-E-T-Z. All right. Well, buddy got, got me like off kilter Janowitz or like you're pronouncing <laughs> the V silent or some shit like that. I, I, I don't know. I, I thought I had it right. That's I've the heard of Jana Wicks. Yeah, there's all kinds of variation there. <laughs> I just call you Joe Jano. That works. That works too. All right, Joe, my friend. We obviously uh you and I met last October in Tinley Park. It was a great show. It was it was good to finally put a, a face to a name. Um so why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, well yeah, Tinley Park, great show. Uh, lucky enough to be uh, very close to it. I'm born and raised in Peoria, Illinois, halfway between Chicago and St. Louis. Um, I'm a, I work at a lumber yard in the production shop. We do wall panels, uh, window mulling and jamming, uh, you know, cabinet assembly, uh, industrial woodwork, you know, you, you name it. Big shop. It's kind of fun. Uh Joe, you know I can barely change a light bulb. That's that's the extent of my handyman capability. Well, you need a guy to hold it and a guy to turn the ladder. That that's how you get the light bulb changed. I found that out. I, I'm, I'm going to try that. I appreciate the uh, the console. Yeah, it's a two man job. Uh, let's see. Got a wife. Got a couple kids. Young kids. They're a blast. Uh, I got my first Chondro in 2001. Just bought it as a pet up at a swap. Uh, the Lee Watson Reptile Swap up in um, Streamwood, Illinois. Anybody from northern Illinois, southern Wisconsin, even Iowa, uh, northern Indiana will remember that show. Uh, Lee, Watson, Lee Watson has left us. He, he's up north now. Um, but mm. it, was a, it was a good show for a lot of years. And, uh, you know, one day we, I went up and I was, I was going to get a tortoise 
as a pet, and he had three chondros there. There was a red and two yellows, and they, they were good-looking. They were probably eight months old. Uh, the yellow one that I bought had a big turd in the bottom of its tank, so I figured he was eating and, uh, you know, sprung for it, had always loved them, and uh, it did great. You know, I had it for four years, finally sold it. It even laid a clutch of eggs to the guy who bought it, you know, some years later. And nice. I was hooked. In fact, it was it was that snake that uh, led me to Rico Walter because I, I called him one day out of the blue and, you know, to try to pin down what type of or what locality it was and described it to him. And we talked for a while and it just kind of opened the door and I've never yeah. left. Very, very nice. Um, we'll get in a minute uh, about your collection because uh, there's probably no one more excited than you other than me about um, uh, your female that laid uh, here recently. So uh, I look forward to because I haven't really talked to you much about that clutch, but um, but obviously I, I want to hear about it here here in just a minute. Okay. Hey John, um, hey. could you just take a minute? Could you just take a minute and give us kind of an overview of of your collection now? Uh, you know, what are you keeping? How many animals do you have? That that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I predominantly I've got a pretty focused project. Um, I've got some locality animals and I've got some designer animals, but all of my designer animals are. Uh, pretty selectively chosen blue line animals and all the locality animals that I have are um, pretty well selected as well for the purpose of being um, outcross females and stuff like that. So I have uh, a mix of both and I appreciate them both, but it, but it's all a part of the plan. I don't, I'm not going to breed any locality animals. It's all a part of a, a blue line breeding project. Um, so, but I do have a female uh, Wamina um, she's a Bushmaster animal. Uh, she used to be owned by a guy, David Privets, and uh, she's a she's a pretty nice, kind of got a powdery blue wash. She's a really good-looking red female. I have about nine chondros, maybe ten at the moment in total. Um, uh, everyone mentioned Dave D. earlier. I have uh, a pair of sisters from, uh, I believe it was his landmark, first clutch, you know, and um, it, it was probably the best blue clutch, in my opinion, um, in the last, certainly in the last decade. Yeah, um, yep. And um, and just absolutely fantastic. I'm, so anyway, and his results were great, and I, and I was into, uh, me and Dave were friends, and so anyway, I ended up getting two uh, from that clutch, and with was it a to, uh, was it a male and female from that clutch, or do you know yet? It's two girls. Um, one I selected uh, unsexed and and went forward on it uh, without knowing it's sex, and then it, it's also a girl. So, but uh, but anyway, so they're they're just you know, the snakes I've always dreamed of, uh, to be honest with you. And um, and I've got a snake uh, from Christian, a good friend of mine. Uh, from a Jake male, a male called Jake, uh, to a female called Watermelon that was owned by Bob Kelly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jake yes. is owned by Danny Brado, um, and he's a 
he's a fantastic male too. So those three are kind of like my crown jewels that I'm, I'm that I've, I guess splurged on. And then I've got some, uh, some other blue line stuff and things like that. So, yeah, but those are the most, probably the most notable, um, in my collection at the time. Yeah. Christian Stewart's a great guy. We've tried to get him on the show, um, several times, but man, he just wants too much money, you know, yeah. just, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Christian is a great Rockstar guy. Money. He is. <laughs> yeah, we blew all of our money getting Trooper on. I mean, shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> Christian is a great guy. He's one of the. He's kind of a silent giant. It seems like um, in the hobby, uh, but man, he's he's uh, he's just a great guy all the way around. Great keeper. Great person. Uh, always willing to help and. Um, I can't say enough about Christian Stewart. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt. I completely agree. Um, yeah, definitely has been a uh, very important part in how I keep condros and and uh, a good friend to have discussions with over the years. So for sure. You know, the one thing that um, you know that kind of caught my attention about Christian, he was. Um, he was nice enough to invite me out to the barn uh, when I was up there, and the guy always has a temp gun in his hand. I mean, he, he, he just he – just, it's in his right hand just all, all the time. He's always shooting temps, you know. Like every single day I think he goes out there and adjusts his, his thermostats, you know, based on the temp that day. You know, he's just uh, – he, he's just – he's meticulous is what he is. He might not be a daily – but, uh, yeah, he is. <laughs> hey, I wanted to ask you, um, you were talking about your collecting locality types to breed into designer lines for high blue. What, what do you, I mean, what's your opinion on if you could have any locality type, um, you know, to get into a blue line project, you know, what is it? Well, I mean, you know, there's no, just based on what you see. I mean, I think any red neonate female, um, the more blue she has naturally on her own, the better, uh, you know, those are all good criteria that you can use to pick one out. But I mean, there's been some stuff lately that's just been really showing to like those manocs that you see out the manicwaris that Gary's got, yeah. it, yeah. you know, and that stuff's been bred already, um, back by Rico into a little bit more of a blue line. stuff. he had a pro he, I think he borrowed that male at one point, the original Prada male or, or maybe it was Gary's uh, offspring of it. But um, so, you know, anyway, so that stuff's been blended into some blue line. I believe that mail that Dave D used in his blue line pairing that just recently got posted on um, MVF is, uh, you know, part Prada blood. So anyway, that, yeah. that stuff seems to be exciting. Yeah, I would agree. Buddy, what um, about you? What, uh, Buddy, what, what are your thoughts? You've seen a lot of uh, chondro throughout the years. What would your like number one locality pick be if you just wanted to go try to you know get into a blue line project and working with a locality type? I'd be banging on Gary Schiavino's door <laughs> for some of his Arfak and Manaquari stuff. Definitely, that 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 would be the that would be my number one pick, and then. Um, you know, then after that, I would just keep my eye out on somebody who would be, you know, going to release uh, 
some people let some stuff go, and I look at it like, gosh, I should really pull the trigger on this. But, um, but I, you know, there's some stuff out there that people have had that looks really good. That, you know, believe it or not, there's some Deox stuff out there that I think would really, they have this like, I don't know, blue wash near the bottom of their body, and I'm thinking that might be interesting to, you know, throw into a blue line animal just to see where where it may take that project. Um, but yeah, definitely my number my number one pick would be uh, I'd be you know, banging on Gary's door, saying, you know, yeah, Manaquari yeah. or one of the R Fox that he's working with, go go that route. And, and if I had to do another choice, um, I love job horror types. Um, yeah. I think that, uh, you know, there's some, you know, you, you can get a hold of a nice job, job horror and put it with some of the, the blue line stuff, and I think it would, that would work out well, as, you know. Hmm. Hey, guys, the uh, you mentioned the R Fox and the Jayapura. And it was the Arfak Jayapura cross that, you know, came in uh, is the the blue the new blue line, right? Right, that'd right. be great too. And that that pairing, that uh, Arfak Jayapura pairing, has when combined with you know the domestic Trooper Walsh blue line, uh, produced some blue animals, very blue animals. So yeah, you're dead on about uh, mm. both of those localities being effective with the uh, recognized blue lines. Nice, good stuff. Mark, why don't you uh, take a minute and tell us about uh, the animals that you're that you're keeping right now? Well, um, I don't have a I don't have the John Irby hyper focus on my collection, and uh, I kind of collected uh, you know a lot of different things, and I think I've kind of started to fine tune it somewhat, but I think that, that that's something that happens at a certain, you know, stage in, in your collection. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of getting to that point, you know, funds limiting. I would love to work with, you know, blue line and Calico stuff, but I just don't really have the funds to be able to do that. Uh, so I started out uh, my first breeding pair, my first uh, pair that I produced were two Jayaporas, uh, the it was a, a red uh, female and a yellow male, both excellent examples of the locality. So, And I repeated that pairing. So I'm sitting on all the reds that I had throughout two clutches. I've sold off a majority of the yellows. I've still got four or five of them here. But I think I've got nine reds that I'm raising up right now. Uh, Mark, where did you get the animals, the parents? Were they Bushmaster? I bought babies or they're they they are both undocumented um i was told that the female came from a private collector in new jersey so and that's all that i know about her um the male Gary. Back was bought, bought <laughs> from uh s exotics by the previous owner um and he had actually the, the previous owner had produced a clutch out of them and i don't think that there was anything really held back i don't even know you know, if there is any offspring from them out there, I have no idea where they are. But that kind of um, started my my focus on, uh, you know, locality projects. So, you know, I definitely want to see that through and, and see where it goes. I've got some Bushmaster uh, F2, Kofi Albiox. I've got, I got one from Rico, a female. I uh, proved her out two years ago to an F2 Kofi Albiox Bushmaster male that I got from uh, another collector who was unproven at the time. 
and hmm. uh, got a beautiful clutch out of them, and it just went absolutely disastrous on hatch day. I mean, everything was absolutely perfect, and then uh, I had 14 eggs, and I believe one of them never hatched. Nine of them crawled out of the egg and, and died you know, right there, I never made it out of the hatch box. I've still got the other four here, two reds and two no. yellows. Uh, I've got, um, what else? I, I, I've got a little bit of, you know, like quarter blue line stuff. I got a, a mail from Rocky, and I bought a pretty cool mail from uh, Jason Stevens. And uh, I had a, a Kofi Al female. Um, unfortunately I lost her last year though. She was, I think she just had a a chronic respiratory issue. It was just a battle the whole time. And she eventually passed, which, uh, which sucked because I looked and looked and looked for a male and it was like, there's never any males available. And then like, you know, as soon as she passes, uh, there's one guy that sold a couple males here in the States and, you know, I had the funds like, you know, ready to go. And I was like, (laughs) well, I'm kind of, kind of out of that one, but, yeah, so the Giants, uh, you know, some Kofi Albiot stuff. I bought a Ross Center produced uh, uh, Bioc times Kofi Albiot clutch, and I got a yellow, um, what I thought was a female for the longest time. Pretty sure it's a male now, but he's he's still almost solid yellow, and, and he'll be three in August, I believe. So I'm like, you know, fingers crossed huh. <laughs> yeah. he stays at yellow. Because he'll be real cool to cross back into some of the, the Kofi Albiak projects, and uh, I just just a few days ago bought a, another little critter from uh, Ryan Wallason. I apologize, man, if I butchered your name, but um, that is also oh, no, that is a uh, Biak times a Rubiak, um, which I think will fit in pretty nicely, kind of along the lines of some of the stuff that was happening at Bushmaster, you know, so you get, you get some normal stuff and then you get some wacky stuff, you know, so I'll probably, uh, you know, raise some of those up and see where they go. And and that's, that's pretty much uh, most of my class. I got a nice, nice big Aru female here and I got a a signal hurt Cyclops male. If anybody listening has a really nice Cyclops female, they want to send my way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'll take it. (laughs) But, uh, He's proven too, so everybody listen. He's proven. <laughs> but uh, that, that's pretty much it. It's it's uh, you know probably about ten adults and, and everything else is just stuff I produced and then a few pickups here and there. So very yeah, very cool. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe, um, I guess you're up, buddy. Uh, first of all, man, let, let's hear about that clutch. Uh, well, it's uh, I got I got 14 eggs. Uh, what three days ago? Two days ago, uh, it was one of the two females that I have uh, from a pairing I did uh, a breeding loan. Um, you know, raised them up from babies, and uh, I had you know these really big plans to. I had a rich culver, uh, very blue looking male that I bought a couple of years ago and uh, you know I, I wanted to put those genes together and uh I lost him over the summer uh so I had I had to snag another male and it was a uh it was from Ty Keys over in Indiana and uh I put that male with this this one female and 
they hit right off and everything just kind of went textbook as they say and uh here we are about three months from pairing them and uh sitting on eggs that's fantastic and i think you told me you you've got her sister who is also maybe gravid is that right yeah, her sister is uh, just about two weeks behind uh, the one that just laid, uh, you know, as far as the, the ovulation event. Um, you know, the, the, the pairing happened about the same time, the, all the breedings, but she took about two weeks later. So, yeah, I expect eggs out of her, yeah, in about 10 days, 10 or 14 days. Very exciting. Was it the same, was it, was it the same male, Joe? No, it was a different male. Uh, the, the male that uh, p- will potentially sire this upcoming clutch is a Bioc Cyclops cross uh, produced by Brian Goff out in uh, Central California, uh, actually owned by James Gabriel here on kind of an indefinite breeding loan situation. Very nice. And as you know, I have a a very vested interest in what those females do because I have uh, a sister. Lucky Charms. To your girls. Lucky Charms, that's right. And Lucky Charms, uh, she's a small girl. She's she's the same age, as obviously, as your girl. She's four. Um, But I wanted to give her another year, uh, just get a little more size on her. And I just didn't feel like she was ready to go this year, so... I, I can't wait Absolutely. to see what her what her sisters throw um, this year because next year uh, she's going to be she's going to be putting the game plan. Oh yeah, well she's awesome. Uh, she's just breathtaking, beautiful. The diamonds, the 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 blue, and the that wonderful shade of green. Yeah, she's an awesome snake, and uh, you know it was a a, a varied you know color wise clutch. Uh, these two sisters here, the one is very melanistic, uh, you know, basically green and black. Uh, and her sister is a very faded green, a uh, little bit of yellow, you know, but it looks like she has more yellow than she does uh, just because of the, the pastel shade of the green and uh, also the diamonds like your Lucky Charms. Um, right. You know, awesome snakes. Yeah, that that girl has been nothing but a a, a dream come true, a, a perfect snake. Eats every time, sheds perfect, never sick, great temperament. I mean, she is the girl that I you know go and pick out when somebody's never seen a green tree before. And they come in my room, I take her out and I hand them and I hand it to them. You know, just a perfect snake. Yeah, that that's how these two here are. Uh, like you said, just temperament-wise, uh, on down to, like you said, sheds and defecations and, and feeding and everything else. It, we lucked out there, buddy. Yeah, we did. We did. And and I I appreciate it because the uh, the sire to that clutch, Duffman, is no longer with us. Yeah, he, he, he left, like so many of them do. So many of them you do. Know, uh, un- unfortunately... Uh, yeah, you know, sometimes they'll give it two, three, four good years and clock out. Uh, yeah. Hard thing to pin down. Well, Joe, why don't you tell us a little bit about, what, you know, what else? You, you've been keeping chondros for a long time. What else What else do you have under your roof? 
Well, I got to tell you, I don't have a lot right now. Um, you know, hoping to expand the collection here in 50 and 60 days, of course. But, uh, I, you know, back when we first bought this house, uh, I had a snake room upstairs. And it was this perfect little bedroom. Uh, you know, you could barely call it a bedroom, but it, it had a closet in it, so they called it a bedroom. Anyway, uh, we had our boy, and he had his room. We had our bedroom, and we had this great little snake room. And I had, well, with babies, without babies, I probably had eight eight or ten chondros um, just from, uh, all over the map. Uh, a couple of Arubiacs, um you know, just some designer bloodline stuff, some really weird and wild stuff. Um, and then we found out we had a daughter on the way. So I had to lose that bedroom and decided to move some things along, uh, some, of the, some of the animals along. They went to great homes, um, but I really downsized my collection basically to that one male, that Duff man. He's all I had. And uh, I sent him off, and he did great work. And, uh, you know, I got some animals back from him, and I've been, you know, putting the pieces back together and then, uh, you know, keeping the collection real small, more out of uh, necessity than want. But right. uh, yeah, it brings us to where we are today. Well, great. Here uh, a little bit later in the show, we're going to kind of get into some um, breeding techniques, and I, I can't wait to hear, um, you know, kind of your process, uh, what you went uh, through to get those two girls gravid. So, um, yeah, good stuff, man. Be happy to share. Hey, John, uh, you know, kind of the next uh, thing that Buddy and I wanted to talk about, um, you know, what what do you feel is the most challenging aspect of keeping these animals? What What is the – what's the hardest part of it or what's the, the one thing that you – it's kind of always keeping you like, oh, man – you know, that's going to hurt. Yeah, I just, I really have come to think over the years, it's just overthinking it, you know, just the mental pain. That's the most challenging part of it is overthinking these things. Yeah. I um, I think you kind of provide them what they need. I, I mean, I've definitely got, as we all do, my own opinions about what they need, but I think, you know, once you find a recipe that works in your house and the way you want to do it, and I think there's a lot of ways to keep chondros and provide them the, you know, there's kind of high points that they need in order to thrive. And, and, um, and they, for me, I mean, I just, they run like a top really. I mean, of course I have a bad shed when winter sets in and, um, and some things like that. And, um, but I mean, you know, I don't have, you know, I've gotten an RI, um, stuff like that, but, you know, I think there's fluke occurrences, but, but yeah. You know, that's the one thing um, that we haven't talked a lot about on this the show is the bad shed deal. And, you know, right. that gets back into a big debate, mist, don't mist, you know, humidity levels. Mm. And, and I've certainly had my fair share of bad sheds here. And the, the, the winters here down in Texas are brutally dry, very, very dry. I yep. run a humidifier in my room, um, but I still get animals that have bad sheds. And, you know, I keep other species. I keep – my carpets never have bad sheds. I mean, I, I've never had a carpet that's had a bad shed. I have ball pythons that have bad sheds. I'll soak them one time for three hours, put them back in their tub, and the next day the the bad shed's completely gone. I have a chondro that has a bad shed. 
I can soak that thing overnight, you know, for three weeks at a time, and it still has its bad shed on it, it seems. So I, I don't know why they – it seems like they continue to, to hold on to that shed once they've had a bad shed. I don't know if any of you experts can um, – you know, elaborate on that is, you know, is that just me? Is that, or does that seem to be kind of a universal thing when a condor has a bad shed? It's tough to get rid of. I don't find them to shed too difficult, uh, you know, any different than any other snake. Um, uh, you know, once they, you know, soak them down and that kind of thing, I soak them in a tub in their enclosure and try to keep it as warm as possible. But, but um, I definitely, you know, have come to realize it has nothing to do with humidity. It has to do with hydration. Although hydration kind of, yeah, humidity can glue you back together. Uh, you know, kind of, you know, um, afford you a little bit of tolerances. It'll help you get a good shed toward the end. But if the animal is not hydrated, and that seems to be uh, more important to me, so or to them, yeah. It, you know, it's kind of it's, it's finding a, a balance between you know good ventilation but not too much to where they're too dry you know you you have to ha- you can't have this damp stale environment um you have to you know I, I i miss during the winter a couple times a week during the summer i don't do it at all but when they're in shed whether it's summer or winter you know once they go opaque you know i'll, I'll blast them let them dry out yeah. blast them again let them dry out, blast them again until they shed, um, and usually get very good sheds. Uh, I typically don't have to soak them in, in tubs, though I have recently, because John suggested it, and it worked out just fine. Um, but it, it is. It's, you know, you can have it so humid that they get sick, so moist that you know, they get sick, or so dry that they don't shed right. It's finding that in between. Right. Well, I think um, I think it was John that said, you know, hydration is the key. Um, you know, get those chondros to drink, and you know they're they're not the smartest animals on the planet. You know that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, so yeah, getting them to drink. I, you know, I think just in my personal experience, providing fresh water providing uh, a large water dish, or I, I've gone to using uh, the um, the water bowl holders that are, you know, attached to the, the perch that um, uh, David Brahms puts out. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it, if it, if that helps or not, but I certainly, I don't think it hurts to have that water source elevated uh, to the level of the animal, not make it come down to the bottom of the cage. Try ice cubes. I put ice cubes really? in the water bowls. Yeah, when I when I yep. change the water, I tend to do it in the afternoon or evening, uh, just before mm-hmm. lights out. And uh, so, you know, you clean the water bowl, you fill it up with water, and I'll throw about six ice cubes in there. And, hmm. you know, I think they prefer to drink cold water. I don't know. I, yeah. You know. Uh, but I think yeah. maybe the ice cubes, if they're moving around in the water, uh, it might, you know, shine off their eyes and they see the, you know, the water moving and they go down to investigate and there's a nice cold drink of water. Um, I I have noticed that when I put the ice cubes in and I put the water bowls in and I come back down, say an hour later, either to feed them or just to have a look, uh, 
a lot of times their their head is down there in the water, toward the water. Sometimes I'll catch them in the act of drinking. You know, I don't know. Can't <laughs> say wow. it's uh, absolute, but it doesn't hurt. No, no. Wow, that that's awesome. Mark, um, how about you? What you mentioned a couple of things, little trials and tribulations that we probably have all experienced. Um, our eyes and kind of bad sheds and stuff like that. What I mean, what what's the the bane of your condor keeping? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna touch on a couple things here. Uh, first off, I want to say that uh, both what John and Joe said. Um, first off, John with the dehydration, I think that's absolutely critical. Um, I think if an animal's dehydrated, you can you can have their enclosure completely saturated, and you can still experience a bad shed. Um, it's all in the, the animal's ability to to loosen that shed, you know, to retain that water underneath it and separate from it. And I've, I've seen some that are just so dehydrated that, you know, you give them the ideal conditions and they still don't want to shed on you, you know, and then you got to do the soak. And, and, uh, you know, I, I do this thing where when I experience a shed like that, I'll, I'll soak them for a while and I'll pull them out with gloves and I'll, you know, tediously work at them and, and slowly try and lift it up off of their, you know, their upper and lower jaws and, you know, and it's a, it's a painstaking process that I don't think anyone likes to go through, but, you know, I, I think anybody that keeps any number of animals is going to deal with that type of shed sooner or later, or, you know, you go out of town or something too. And, and, uh, you know, you keep the enclosure hydrated, but you know, they, they didn't shed on, on time and, you know, and now it's dried to them and that, you know, it's, it's, it's that much more difficult. And, and also what, what Joe said, you know, keeping cool water is an outstanding idea. And I, I've never thought of ice cubes before, but I think it's a, an awesome idea. It's really, really good. Really yeah, me good. Too. I'm going to do that. Um, and, and the reason that I, I think that that's an awesome idea based on my experiences is that the time that I see my condors drinking the, the most, the best, you know, I've got a few, no matter what time of day it is, the second that you put fresh, cool water in there, you know, they'll wake right up, boom, shoot down the water bowl. And I've, I've seen them drink for hours. I mean, I've seen some stick their head down there, and they may not be actively drinking the whole time. But, you know, the, the tip of their mouth will be in the water. And you can see when they're drinking, too, you know, their head's flat. Sure, you can tell. Else, but yeah. That's... Yeah, and that, that's the thing. The, the, the condors that drink like that never have any shed issues with. Um, right. The ones right. that, that, that don't uh, shed well or, you know, experience the seasonal shedding difficulties seem to be the ones that get a majority of their hydration through feeding, which I, I soak all my, you know, mice and uh, you know, I, I feed uh, ASFs from time to time, um, so I soak everything. All, so they do get you yeah, know, little, little residual hydration right. there, right. but yeah, but that's not enough, you know. Um, so those are those are really critical things. I think hydration is is probably, you know, one of those those main points that a lot of people hit on. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up a kind of a little bit of a, you know, maybe controversial thing here maybe not i don't know uh, we love controversy i think one of the here. most i think one of the most <laughs> difficult things about keeping chondros is and I, i've learned this with experience i i've never um i'm not trying to like you know you know brag on myself here or anything but i i don't think i've ever personally induced 
a an issue in anything. I've never had a single issue with any neonates that I produce, anything young that I bought directly from the breeder. I mean nothing, absolutely nada. Every single animal that I've ever had a single problem with, be it uh, excluding possibly a bad shed. I will say, you know, I have uh, very, very, very infrequently I've had a couple things I produce had a, a, you know, subpar shed where it's not, you know, in one piece draped over the perch like you like to see, you know, it comes off in pieces or whatever. Um, I have not had to soak anything I've produced, I will say that, uh, to get rid of a shed. Um, but I, I think that one of the most uh, difficult parts of keeping chondros is uh, acquisition of adults that have changed collections multiple times. Mm-hmm. And I've even gotten to the point to where I don't think that uh, unless it's something that I really feel that I need and it really fits into my collection and it's something that I want to do, which would you know probably be some sort of locality project or whatnot, or if it's like, a, you know, just taking something in for a buddy that can't take it anymore or something like that. Um, I, I don't think I'll ever purchase another chondro that's changed. Co- you know, you know those chondros that, boom, they're in and out of a collection just like that. You know, they're going on the fourth, fifth, sixth owner, that kind of stuff. It, it just, to me, those seem to be problem animals. They've, they've, they've been in too many collections. They've seen too much stuff. And they're the ones that will come to your house and they'll chill and they'll, they'll ride through quarantine and, you know, and, and hopefully if there's something wrong with them, that's when it's going to present itself, you know, and, and I like to do, you know, I like to do a nice long thorough quarantine too. Cause I, you know, I don't want anything, you know, getting in there. You'd be as careful as possible. I mean, I've got a lot of, you know, just, uh, play money. You know, I had a, basically a race car at one point in time that I sold just to fund my condo collection. And sometimes <laughs> I'm kind of scratching my head, like, what was I thinking? But no, just, just messing. But, uh, but you know, it just, I got that, that heavy in the condos, you know, and I started, uh, there was, there was one year where I bought, you know, too many critters and I, I dealt with the, the repercussions from it. You know, I, I had a male that, um, you know, he, he uh, was outwardly fine, came to me. Um, you know, I was notified that uh, this male had had a problem by, by somebody else, you know, warned. So I was on the lookout, you know. He's riding through quarantine, and uh, everything's fine. You know, I do I do this thing where, you know, they're draped over the perch, and I'll go in and give them a little tickle on the bottom of the coil and try and get that, that huff and puff out of them, you know, and listen – listen for the, you know, anything out of the abnormal, you know, what I want to hear is a nice solid hiss, you know, I don't want to hear anything else out of it. I don't hear any clicking or popping or, you know, anything like that. And he was perfectly fine, no problems. And, uh, you know, then I, I, I'm like, okay, well, I, you know, maybe it was a bad shed or, you know, who knows what the situation was, but I felt confident that he was good, you know, and I brought him into my collection and put him with two different females and he, I was kind of, swapping them back and forth, which was, uh, you know, not a, not a good thing. Unless, you know, I, I don't, I don't actually do that anymore because it actually kind of makes me nervous right now. But, uh, he actually ended up getting one of those two females sick it, to the point to where, uh, that pretty much shut down my whole breeding season last year. Cause I pulled the male, put him back in quarantine, 
for the female, put her in quarantine, and, and went through a lot of painstaking processes to try and isolate what's going on, you know. And, and I, I spent, you know, most of my breeding season in 2015, 2016 with animals in all different rooms, you know, and you know how that is when you're trying to yeah. – to do your daily maintenance and you're, you're running all over the house and you're trying to keep an eye on things and they're, you know, this room's different than that room, you know, as far as the temperature and, and the ventilation and whatnot. So, so anyways, you know, long, long story short, um, I, I just, I, I don't, I don't like the idea of, um, you know, purchasing anything that I don't, you know, thoroughly know and trust the history of the animal and where it came from, you know, and, and for that reason, I don't like, uh, even though I have, you know, some of it, I don't like undocumented stuff. It's just, it's very risky. You know, I think yeah. if you're, if you're yeah, a guy, you've got a couple animals in your collection and you've got the time, you know, and, and I envy these people that have, you know, one or two animals that can pick up on those cues like instantly, you know, but when you've got, you know, 30 condos or whatever, um, and you, you start, uh, you know, something starts happening, it's really, it can be difficult to pick up on all these little nuances in, in time, you know, I mean, you, you know, all your animals, but, uh, so that, that would be kind of my, my thing. The most difficult part is just, you know, acquisitions, um, quarantine, you know, the, the seller of the animal, a lot of different things come into play at that point. You know, I'm definitely a big, you know, proponent of buying from the breeder. You know, it's only got one history. It's just like buying a car. I mean, you know, yeah. it, it only take one, one owner during that time of, of questionable husbandry to, to, you know, have effects on other collections. So that, that'd be my, well, Mark, that's, that, that, that's a great, great point, and um, you know, animal acquisition. I didn't even really think like if if I would have been the guest and somebody would ask me the question, it probably would, for me would have been establishing babies. But you're exactly right. The acquiring uh, new animals can is can be devastating, especially if you're a new condor keeper. It's your first one. You know, you know, you get yeah. an animal and sure. it doesn't establish well. Uh, for whatever reason, most of the time it's because they're uh, imported uh, animal that you're trying to get on the cheap, and they don't mm-hmm. establish well. It uh, you know it's devastating to the new keeper. They never want to keep a chondro again. But even the people like sure. yourself that have more experience with that, um, and you know, I mean, I've done it too. I, I've acquired adult animals, and your word risky is perfect. Because it's a risk. Yeah. It's a lot higher risk than if you if you um, a, a acquire a established neonate or even a sub adult. Um, it's risky, and um, boy, that that was a, a great explanation. Joe, what about you? Well, what's what's Mark the one thing? Speech, that... Apparently, he was. I was going <laughs> to say the same exact thing he did. Um, acquisition, huh? What's that? Acquisition. Yeah, it, it, I, I've learned the hard way. Um, you know, you, you buy animals that are, it just seems like when they're past a certain age, they are, 
you know, tuned in to, you know, who's keeping them and how they're keeping them, and they come to a new environment, even if they've never been sick by, you know, the original owner or two, um, right. they come to a new, a new setup, a new environment, things are a little bit different, uh, whether or not yep. they, they brought that with them or the conditions aren't right for them. Um, I think more often than not, they bring it with them. But, no, it's a uh, – Mark hit the nail on the head. Uh, there, you know, there's no fast track to these guys. Uh, yeah. Very hard to buy an adult pair and crank out a clutch the next year, uh, right. let, alone keep, let alone keep them alive. Yeah. Keep them alive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Keep them alive yeah. and, and make them thrive. Uh, yeah. that's, that's an excellent point. And, you know, you kind of alluded to it, but – you know, a lot of the animals are sold with good intention and could be perfectly healthy in their in their environment. But I think a lot of animals are sold because people are having problems with them. You know, hey, it's a lot of it's adult, happened, adult animals. You know, could be sold because you know they're having the keepers having problems with them. And um, it's, you know, it's that's like well, there there's that they're not having problems with the last two, but but they, they're not having problems with the last two, but they killed the first eight. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. They had, you know, yeah, they, they, so they, these are just their last two, and they're sadly selling them, but they've already lost eight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, they can get sick during shipping. Um, sure. You know, it, you hate to say that they're just going to pick something up overnight, but, it, you know, yeah. it, it can happen. It, 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 you know, the wrong thing. It can go down during the process. Yeah, it can, but you never know, do you? You never really know. No, you can't ever know. Uh, but, but, yeah, uh, again, what Mark said, you buy them, you know, as youngsters, and you just have to put the time in to raise them up in that environment, uh, your environment, and, you know, go forth from there. Uh, but somebody, somebody mentioned getting neonates to feed. So that would be a close second. Yeah, that, that's what I said would, would have been my answer. Um, although acquisition, when you know, I just didn't think about it. But when you think about it, that I, I think that's the obvious, the obvious answer. And especially because a lot of people that are getting chondros aren't breeding chondros. You know, they're, they're just getting them to have. And and if you if you get one in it, it, it doesn't um, acclimate well. Then you know. That's the worst thing that can happen. It is. Hey, if you guys, you guys, hey guys mind that I, yeah. You mind if I Go butt ahead. in for just a second? Um, I just kind of wanted to follow through on what I said too, um, which uh, Joe brought up some really good points too. I'm not trying to point fingers or anything else, and I, I completely agree that, you know, there can be shipping complications or that it could just be a change in environment and an animal that, you know, maybe didn't have the strongest, you know, immune response to begin with. So it's not always, like you said, it's not always, you know, a a poor husbandry thing on the the previous owner's experience or the previous owner's experience. Uh, I would, I I just, I totally 100% second what Joe said there and, and, you know, I think it was important that I should have added that when I was speaking, but uh, it's just just all around. You know, there's just a lot of variables, so that's that's all I had to say there. Okay. 
Well, um, you know, we, we do this show, uh, and every time we do it, and I don't think we can talk about it enough, is husbandry. Uh, because, you know, Buddy and I are both such big believers in there's no right one way, two way, three way to, to keep these animals. And we've had a lot of people on that have kept them lots of different ways. So why don't, you know, we just, again, we'll start with John and maybe John, if you could just share with us uh, just your basic husbandry um, uh, keeping with your adults and, and, and your neonates, you know, concerning temperature, humidity, feeding, misting, just that kind of stuff. All right. Well, um, yeah, everybody's had some really good stuff so far. It's kind of got me thinking. Um, I'll just start with neonates. I keep everything in racks, you know, standard stuff. Um, I've had some racks made for me by Animal Plastics, and I've gotten some some of the clear tubs, the Cambro tubs that go in them. I've had them made. Um, they'll change the measurements around and make you racks for whatever tub you want. So that that's pretty cool. And um, pretty standard stuff. Um, I probably keep things, I don't know if I'd say warmer than other people because I don't really, I have a hard time understanding what other people do. Um, when they talk about the cool side or the warm side, like what are they reading, what temps are they reading, and where are they reading them from, and how are they reading them? Are they talking about the probe temp or the, you know, the, what the thermostat says or heat gun, the perks temperature, surface? You know, so yeah, like, what, right. what are we? What's our unit of measure here? You know, type of thing. So, so anyway, um, I my adults I keep in tubs, uh, tub cages I built myself. Um, it's actually a play on an idea that came from a good friend of mine, and uh, a lot of people on MVF know him. Buddy knows him. Um, a lot of people have some snakes from him, but his name's Ben Evans, um, and he lives yep. locally to me and. And so these are kind of like Rubbermaid tubs with, I guess you'd, people might refer to them as Maxwell-style face frames on the front. Yeah, And yeah. Um, picture frames, right. sliding glass type yeah, thing. Yeah, and, yeah. And then I make some of those for me. Yeah, love them. Yeah, yeah, they work great. Um, and then I've taken that and kind of changed it and just got my thinking going in different directions about how chondros could be kept and not should be kept. But um, and I've kind of taken some ideas, or taken some ideas from um, Terry Phillip, and then um, I've taken some ideas from Buddy, uh, and so I jokingly call this the Bushimi. And um, that's when you, I have center mount panels in my cages. Um, so my my uh, I have a couple of techniques that are called the Bushimi, but. Um, <laughs> So, uh, anyway, yeah, so I've got center mount panels and not over to the side. So I have a reduced gradient is what that creates, and um, it kind of creates more warmer, cool sides, and they have two of them to choose from, and so they move around a little bit more. Um, and there's less gradient, and like we were referring to earlier, I don't – some people mentioned about the water thing. I don't think these animals do a great job sometimes of taking care of themselves. I sometimes even describe, like, you know, you say, great animal, good feeder. I'll even say, like, great animal, drinks from the water bowl. You know, a male or a female that just drinks regularly from the water bowl, I, I think those animals just are are valuable. I don't think some of them do as good a job as others. So. Anyway, but... Right. But, um... 
So anyway, these animals, I don't think they do a great job taking care of themselves. And so whatever temp I want them to get up to during the day is the temp that I, you know, there's less gradient in there, and I provide metabolic rest uh, in the way of a night drop. Um, you know, I think that kind of like, again, what are we like trying to do for the snake? It needs to get, it needs a place to warm up when needed. It needs to raise its core temp during the day. It needs to have some metabolic rest. I don't think they can really run at top speed, uh, pedal to the ground permanently. I think they need to, then they can provide that metabolic rest by thermoregulation left to right in the cage, or you could provide it by way of a night drop. And, um, and so anyway, that's what I do, uh, on the cages, um, I built the cages myself. I built a lot of stuff myself. I'm kind of a, if I can build it, there's no doubt I like to, I, I have bought some of my stuff when time is limited, but uh, I also really, really admire building things and admire people that do handmade stuff. So a lot of my, a lot of my entire life is hand built by me, furniture, snake cages, you name it. So, um, very nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, but my temperatures aren't all that radical. Um, you know, standard basking spot. Again, I measure core temp. Oh, I don't even know if it's core temp, but I measure with a heat gun off the actual snake, um, underside of the snake, away from the panel. And uh, and so, that, you know, that's how I measure temp on the, on the, on the thing. And so the thermostat settings are, are just wild and all over the place. Um because they don't, you know, my probe placement and my perch height and my distance from my basking panel and all of that then make a, you know, they kind of have a push and pull relationship on each other and make a difference in, right. you know, actuals in the cage. And so I, I, I kind of tune this cage to the snake. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Um, incubator, homemade, stuff like that. So, yeah, cool. That's it, I think. Very cool. Yeah. Nice. And I'll just comment on the heat panel in the center. That that actually was not my idea. That was a uh, Terry Phillip and I had this discussion, and and he passed it on to me. So it's really the Terry Phillip way of how he would do a heat panel if he used them. So um, just doesn't have just thought I would. It, yeah. Okay. Just thought I'd throw that out there. I don't want to take credit for something that's not mine. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> What about um, John? Do you do any type of misting or um, oh, you know, any anything yeah. like that? Or as with everything, Condros, I'm highly opinionated, and um, and yeah, I do now. Um, I tried to be a part of the cult of no misters, and okay. I can't. Um, you know, I just um, I get bad sheds, and my animals seem to perform a little better. Certainly, again, I've kind of blended that. I I don't do the whole misting every day. Um, but I also started to just kind of say, wait a minute, John, if they shed better when they mist, you know, don't quit beating yourself up on trying to keep chondros like this. It seems to be people encouraging, you know, to, to attempt. And so, um, I, you know, I just had to say, John, they're green tree pythons. They're not going to melt if they get a drop of water on them, you know. So I try to mist kind of responsibly. Um, I don't mist at night, you know, and things like that. I normally mist early in the day so they have the the full day to bring up their core temp and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mist Makes in, sense. in shed cycles and stuff like that, yeah. Okay, good. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. What, what about you, Mark? How do you keep your condors? 
Oh man, lots of uh, lots of good information here. I will definitely be going back and giving us uh, a thorough listen after after the fact. <laughs> um, I like I like the the everything John said about the center mounted heat panels and you know and, and Terry Phillips name came up and and um his interview um I think on Morelia Python Radio correct me if I'm wrong there um I, I was thinking it was on there but yeah, well, uh, yeah. you know it has that that has been one of the most interesting things I've ever listened to Condra related um he is absolutely next level you know as far as his husbandry and, and his insights and knowledge and, and whatnot. And I like that a lot. And I wish I would have, I wish I would have listened to those interviews and, and listened to you guys before I set my cages up. Uh, I keep my heat panels off to one side, but they're just 24 inch cubes. So there's not a massive gradient that you would see in a 36 inch cage, but, but to rewind back, um, nothing really special about, neonates i keep them in uh i have a couple sea serpents uh 18 tub racks i order those with back and belly heat i typically just run the back heat uh i got the belly heat just as like a you know the room the room that i was in when i bought them kind of like joe said uh you know i kept all my condos in what is now my daughter's room i got kicked out of that room that was like my third room i'd been in in a couple of years it just kept moving <laughs> around the house you know and uh, right. So now, now I'm in a different room, and you know, residual heat and caging and stuff. The heating's not really an issue. If anything, it's it's too much residual heat. But you know, maybe we'll get into that in another segment of the show. But um, so I keep them, and you know, basically back mounted, or, uh, rear heat mounted uh, sea serpents, 18 tub racks. You know, I, I, I graduate them up to larger perches and and bigger racks when they get to that you know, hundred and hundred to hundred and twenty gram range, somewhere around in there. Um and they'll they'll hang out in there for a while and then I'll I'll eventually uh graduate them up to a larger rack either I have some P V C racks and I also have some, some home built melamine racks, um, which are just such a pain to carry up down the stairs. I've done it like four times <laughs> since I've been here. It's uh it's a back breaking experience every time. But uh, my wife, right. she's, she's like 120 pounds, so she's, you know, no, no offense to her or anything, but uh, it's all on me to get those up and down. But um, she's not much help, right? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a piano too, which is just awesome. I love moving that thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, childhood, you know, heirloom type of thing that, that that she never plays, but we'll never be able to get sure. rid of it. <laughs> but luckily what, my daughter what size tub do you jump them now. up to from from neonate? Uh, you know, I, I feel uh, I feel bad not being able to answer your question here, but I'd actually have to go look at the tubs. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't even know what quart size they are. I use okay. the, the Reptile Basics MD3 racks. Uh, they're they're a three tub, you know, vertical rack. Um, okay. Pretty yeah. Reasonably priced. And, uh, you know, that, that seems to be a good option. And then the ones that I've built are, they're large racks. I mean, they're, they're, they're bigger than, than two cubic feet inside or, a, a, you know, 24 to 24 cage. Um, so I'll use those. And then I've also used, uh, like in quarantine or, um, uh, if I have, 
you know, if I run out of space or something, I'll just I'll build something. I'll build a I'll use a you know, a tub from Lowe's with locking latches on it and uh, slap some uh, flex wide on the back, and then I run the uh, not sure what kind of tape it is. Uh, you, you know, the ductwork you know foil tape. I'll run that right. on the back of the actual heat tape, and that okay. deflects the heat inwards versus outwards. Those those seem to work real well. They're great for quarantine too. I mean, you know, if anything goes wrong or whatever during quarantine, you just toss the whole tub. You don't have a whole lot in it, and you know, move on right. with your life type of thing. Um, so nothing really special uh, when they're young. I I do miss pretty regularly. Um, definitely don't want to see any neonates with stuck sheds. That seems to be pretty pretty tough on them. Um, pretty infrequent here but you know it has happened um as they get older i missed less and less and i like to use uh just the the half width paper towels as the substrate in there it's nice um whenever mm-hmm. they go into shed one, once they get about a year old maybe even six months old i'll just dump a little bit of water bowl in the bottom they always shed just fine no problems uh larger cages i do still miss uh during shed cycles i don't make it a habit out of missing and and uh you know my my collection runs pretty dry throughout the winter months i do have uh i have two humidifiers in my room that i will run if it gets really cold and when i say really cold i mean like you know and this is kind of you know relative to where you're at in the country but you know here in atlanta i mean uh you know sub sub freezing temperatures would be really cold and I'll, I'll run those uh both on a, a low cycle i get about 24 hours out of both the tanks um but anything above that i, I don't really mess with it too much okay. uh adults uh i do just newspaper substrate i've tried all the different little things outside of uh puppy pads i see a lot of people use those and i like the idea and you know, I may switch to that when newspaper stock is running low, and I did not re-up my my Sunday paper this last go around. So <laughs> you know, I may I may look into that. But uh, for the time being, it's just been newspaper, dump the water bowl, and then if they're the type of conjurer that I feel that you know may may be lacking in hydration, I will go ahead and give them some some sprays. You know, I I, I don't really pay as much of attention to the time of day as what John mentioned, but I do think that's a good idea. But I usually do it just as soon as I get home from work. That's kind of my, my daily spot check time. I like to, you know, if I can get, I start work pretty early too, and I, I travel ways each way. So if I can get back by 4.30 and I can get in the room and do what I need to do that day, clean up any poop, you know, check water bowls, see who's in shed, you know, all that good stuff. Um, that would be the time that I'd give them a good mist, you know, and I, I do run a yearly night drop, everything outside of neonates. I don't, when they're real, real young, I usually don't uh, run a night drop just to keep them processing all that food in there. Um, but I will, uh, you know, give them a, give them a spray when I get home and, and that night drop doesn't kick in till. I think I have everything set to drop at like seven o'clock. So, you know, and the, the mister is, is I don't, I never fill it up with uh, cool water either. I do, I actually do warm water that way, you know, when I spray it, 
it's, you know, probably nothing more than just ambient temperature. So hopefully they're not getting a huge drop in their, their core temperature. But, uh, and, and adults, I don't think I covered this, but, you know, I keep all the adults in uh, bow file PVC enclosures with uh, acrylic drop-down doors and, and uh, it's herp stats throughout and, and pro products heat panels throughout. You know, so nothing, nothing wildly out of normal, I don't think. Um, right. Okay. And then as far as their, as far as their temperatures, um, with uh, with neonates and yearlings, they kind of get the, they get the same treatment that everybody else gets. You know, the rack treatment. They get what I feel that the the whole rack is running best at. You know, I like to see, I like to see them move around, and you know, and, and as long as they're healthy and, and uh, processing food and eating and everything else and, and shedding well, then I don't go too far out of the norms. Um, with adults, I pretty much tune cages to the body languages that they give me. So if I see that they're under the heat all the time, and you know, I may give them a little bit more temperature until I see them back off the heat a little bit and, and uh, right vice versa and, and tweak everything, but everything still seems to fall within a pretty normal window. So that's, that's pretty much it. Fantastic. All right. What about you, Joe? How do you keep your chondros? Well, uh, I asked when I did have neonates, I would, uh, you know, they'd be in the tub. I don't use any substrate in the tub. It's a, it's a bare tub and then, what I like about that is I can remove the perch with the chondro on it and just run the tub under some scalding hot water and dump it out, put the snake back in, put the tub back in the rack. Uh, there's no, you know, with neonates, it seems like they're, they, you know, smear stuff all over and it's like a daily thing. I just, I don't want to go through that many paper towels, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, fairly standard there. Uh, once they get to, you know, a year old, or so, depending on their size, I move them up into these. It's, it's a three-tier rack, uh, similar to what Mark was talking about. It's like a 14-inch tub, and uh, you know, a bigger perch, a little more room, uh, and, and then you know, that's kind of a grow out. And then I, I like a two-foot cube uh, with a heat panel up to one side. Uh, you know, what I found with chondros is if you offer them four perches at different heights, they always want to be on the top one. Right. Uh, it's just something I've noticed. So, really, I, I do offer a second perch, but you have to dial in your temps to that top perch because that's where they're going to spend all the time. Uh, you know, keep them at about 84 degrees on the hot spot when they're under the heat panel and you know, on uh, the cool side, they're closer to, you know, high 70s or 80. Uh, uh, fairly basic. Um, hey, Joe, uh, do, do you breed your females in, in two-by-two cubes? I did, is that, yes. Is that enough? Yeah, that's enough room for them? I, well, yeah, these girls here, they're, you know, they're 850 grams, you know, so yeah. they're not huge females. Uh, a bigger female, I, I would. Um, in fact, I had an Arubiac female that was closer to 1,200 grams, and she had a 3 by 2 by 2 
uh, yeah. much bigger snake. Just she looked cramped in a in a two foot cube. And it, sure. Uh, but but touching on what John said about these being fairly stupid animals, you know some some of these <laughs> some of them. Well, they, they, I think I, I think I like, I said that, but John probably agrees with me. Okay, okay. Well, I think we can all agree they're fairly dumb. <laughs> but it's like it's like they don't know how to thermoregulate sometimes in captivity. Uh, yeah. You know, they'll sit under the heat panel no no matter how high how hot you dial it in, or in other cases, they'll sit on the cool side, no matter how, how low you set the heat panel. Uh, yep. I don't know. It's, it's frustrating. Um, you know, sometimes I mean, I, I, ideal FEMA. Go ahead. I was going to say, Joe, I, I agree with that so much. It's um, everybody loves to see their snake move from side to side you know, sitting in the middle most of the time, but on the heat, on the cool side. Um, but, you know, snakes will, and I'll just extrapolate to, you know, my ball pythons. If you give them a hot spot of 150 degrees, they'll lay over there and they'll burn themselves. You know, they're not smart enough to move away from the heat before they burn themselves. And I think yeah, condors are the to, same way. You used to see it all the time when uh, hot rocks. You know, remember yeah, back in the exactly. 80s, you know, early 90s, the hot rocks. A snake would sit on there to stay warm, and it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's the keeper's fault for not providing. But they would burn their belly off rather than yeah. get off that hot rock. And move away. Um, right, I know. It's a weird thing. Again, it's all about, Mark mentioned the snake's body language, and it, it is, it's about learning the individual snake, your individual setup, dialing it in you know, to the best you can, to the best you, you have to be able to try to read the snakes. And, uh, you know, all we can do is do our best to make them feel comfortable. And the rest is kind of up to them. Sometimes we get lucky, you know, other times we don't, um, well, you know, back I to think this. it's like, well, I was going to say, I think it's like, Mar- I think it was Mark that said, that's why you can't buy two adult chondros and put them in a, in a cage and expect them to produce First of all, expect them to survive, and yep. then expect them to produce animals. You know, you can do that with ball pythons. You know, you can do that. You can't do that with green trees. Yeah, they're, you know, yeah, they're more delicate. They're, you know, less resistant to change. And But you look at a ball python. It's this big, husky, you know, snake. I mean, it just, it, it just screams, uh, you yeah. know. Right, strength. You know, it I does. Guess. It's, it's, um, right, right, right. It, it screams indestructibility, and they almost are. Yeah, they they really are. You know, tough. Uh, chondros, you know, skinny, arboreal, uh, which yeah. is huge, yep. and you know, more delicate. With a, with a ball python, you know, a, a heat pad or, or any terrestrial snake, you know, a heat pad, or you know, uh, provides the warmth. We've got to provide for chondros the warmth of the air around them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it can be tricky. Um, again, you just have to figure it out. It's not always easy. Yep, that's the truth. We, well, you know, one thing none of you guys have touched on in your husbandry, and again, I'll kick it back uh, maybe to John. Um, and this is something that I've struggled with as a relatively new keeper. I'm kind of in Mark's category as far as 
length of time uh, that I've kept chondros is is the food source. Um, I think when I went back and you know you read Greg Maxwell's book, he fed everything rats, and then the newer kind of wave generation was well, rats have they're, they're too big a meal, they're too fat, you know, go to mice. Um, and just me personally, just in seeing my the growth and the development of my chondros. I've kind of gone back to where I'm not sure what I should be feeding, so I'm feeding them both. So, <laughs> At the same time? John, why don't you... <laughs> yeah, I'm power, feeding, I'm power feeding them mice and rats at the same time. No, but uh, John, why don't you go back? You know, you, you've, kept, you've kept these animals for a long time. What, what do you feed your... And I guess adults is, is probably the, you know, that's that's kind of the thing. What, what do you feed your adult chondros? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm. <clears throat> I mean, I feed mostly mice. Um, I've gotten uh, willing and uh, and able about feeding um, some African soft birds, but they're tough to find. And so while I was able to get them, um, I saw no problem in them. I'm not opposed to them. It's you know I wouldn't even be opposed really to a rat other than um, with such a small collection and you know you're buying these mice it's kind of like I, I don't really need forty different prey types I mean they run just fine on one mice but I, I don't know if I'd see an entirely uh, entire rat diet and I and I think that they yeah. do, like I said just fine on mice um, and so I've also I believe in the Kind of the again, I think this was Terry that I got this from, talking about m- the most mature prey item that you can possibly give them for that size, and then at a, after an adult mouse, when they tip over to be a jumbo mouse, now they kind of go back down in quality, and at that point, a young weaned adult, you know what I mean, would be the next most nutritious thing. Um, trying to feed it young and vibrant and vigorous. Uh, yet adult and mature uh, prey items uh, were important, and you can do that with mice. So that's what I feed, yeah, pretty much. And the African soft furs, I'd feed them again, but I just can't find them regularly enough, so, yeah. Okay, all right. Mark, what about you? Well, um, I've, I've always gone through a, a varied diet. Um, when I first started keeping chondros, I had a lot of rats here from the boas, um, I had some younger boas, so I had some small rats sitting around, and I didn't necessarily have any problems with feeding those, but I noticed that, you know, instances of backing up and that kind of stuff was definitely a lot greater, um, mm-hmm. so I quickly delved into, you know, what should I be feeding, which seems to be a Another one of those highly controversial topics. You see some breeders seem to do great on a rat-only diet and have 2,000-plus gram chondros, you know, right. on a regular that, that live a long time. Yeah, throw, and other people throw, say, throw. you know, they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll, they'll crap their guts out on that. And, right. you know, so it was, it was tough researching that. But at the time, uh, all my chondros were similar to what Joe described. I mean, I, I don't really have much anything over a thousand grams. I've got a, I've got maybe a 11, 1200 gram Bioc female. Yep. Um, 
I've got like a 900 gram Aru female. Uh, everything else female wise is, is smaller. I don't have any massive males. I mean, I don't think I have a single male over 600 grams. So I switched over to a primarily mouse diet very, very early in, in my chondro keeping. And I've never had any issues with prolapses. And the only drawback that I can say to feeding a mice only diet is that when you do have a larger female, you have to feed you know, maybe potentially two mice at a time. Like I've got a, a that Bioc female, 1200 gram. When she nails yeah. her mouse, her yeah. she, literally half the mouse is gone. She swallows And it. she had right. it down like that, you know. So yeah. she yeah. gets two, that's what I was, you know, because that, that's, that's what I was going to ask that's you. Nothing yeah. To her. So, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you um, if you do feed them multiple. And yeah, I'm glad you address that. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll do that. The only, downfall I could see to that is you do increase the risk of, you know, feeding related injury in the, the weird case that they nail the yeah. heat panel or nail sure. hand. Or nail the tongs. Yeah, nail, nail the, yeah, nail the tongs, tongs. Break a tooth. And yeah. Yep. I, I found that with those type of females, though, I just try and stay on the ready and, you know, and as soon as they're, they've got that, you know, first mouse a ways down, you know, just lay that all in front of their face and they'll usually without a massive response, I'll just kind of, oh, it's there, you know, grab it, it's gone. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm right in the same boat. I mean, pretty much just mice, um, you know, defecations are normal, you know, hydration seems to be good. I do sprinkle in some uh, African soft furs when I can get them. I, you know, I've gone through many of the, the smalls and I've, I've even tried to buy the mediums. I thought it'd be real nice to get the mediums for that Bioc female, you know, one, but they, they seem yeah. to always be sold out. So I, I just, you know, 99% of the time, I'd say it's just it's just been mice. So okay. I'm definitely Joe, a, huge, what about a huge fan of feeding those. Joe Jano? Yo. What, what do you feed uh, your animals? Uh, I, you, I go with mice, um, bar none. I, I, I found personally – that rats tend to bind up the bowels. Um, I think hmm. it's the fur. Um, I think if, if you pet a mouse, just put a mouse in your hand and pet it before you whack it and feed it, you'll find the uh, furs, <laughs> it's finer. It's, you know, fluffier. Yeah. It's lighter. Uh, a rat is yeah. it's damn near like a dog. Uh, they've got dents. Yeah. You know, it seems like they have so much fur, and I think, I think that binds up uh, the, the snakes. Um, I have found it does anyway. Uh, with a big snake, uh, you know, like Mark said, just feed multiple mice instead of one rat. Um, always pre-killed, uh, frozen, thawed. I, I think, you know, feeding live robs the snake of a drink of water. Going back to hydration, if you, you I right. feed them sopping wet, and yeah, they'll, yep. they'll dry a bit, and they're going to squeeze out some of the water uh, when they constrict them, but they're still getting this. You know, they're still getting a decent amount of water in there. Um, it, it's interesting because the very first chondro I ever had, I fed, uh, when it was big enough to eat rats, I fed it nothing but rats. And and it did fine. And I really I wasn't keeping track of the defecations back then. You know, it, I had nothing to compare it to, and it was just, it, it seemed to be doing fine. But, you know, Moving forward, when I when I would feed rats 
versus mice to a snake, the, the defecations came much later, uh, maybe sometimes with tail hanging. Uh, you know, so, yeah, I'm mouse all the way. Okay. All right. All right. Good stuff, guys. Um, we're quickly approaching the two-hour mark here. Can you believe it's gone gone so fast? Goes by quick. It's been fun. Time time flies. Time flies. <laughs> Let's um. You know this is a this is a great um, time of the year because you know we've got um, we've got some gravid females, we've got some eggs in the incubator, um, and we've got some chondros that are getting hatched. So. Let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit and let's let's talk about um, incubation and and uh, taking care of neonates. And again, John, we'll uh, we'll start with you. What uh, what do you do if you're um, fortunate enough to get a, a get a clutch of chondro eggs? What do you do with them? Well, I'll uh, I'll be honest with you. In the ten or t- ten or twelve years that I've kept chondros, uh, this year will be the first clutch that I've had. Um, wow, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, thanks. You know, just um, one thing gets in the way and that kind of thing, or the female doesn't work out, and it's just, it's just this is when it's lined up. And uh, so, yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. And it's a project between uh, Ben Evans and myself. And um, Are you, yeah, is, I got it a, female? I got a, is it your female? It is my Are female. You? I got her. It's okay. a James Updall female. Um Buddy knows James. Um, yeah, I, I, I do. James. Yeah, James is a great friend and a good dude. Um, so I got the girl from him. Um, I was listening to everybody as they were talking and um, talking about acquisition and stuff like that. I got her at three years old, and, and, and I think that that's about the latest you want to go because um, yeah. the ones I've gotten as adults had, had more problems than that. But, so I got her at three, and that girl was able to put me in the game um, and, and when I came back to keeping some chondros a couple of years ago, it got me there quicker. And she's been a really, really solid female. I tried her last year, but she didn't take. And um, But she went through the cycling just fine. And so anyway, I, I rolled her again this year and cycled her and um, and used Ben's male soul train on her. And, um, and she got gravid, and everything went pretty textbook. Uh, and a lot of help from a lot of people and a lot of kicking around ideas. Mark and Joe both are really good friends of mine that, you know, I, I basically toss around ideas with. And, and so, uh, yeah, so she, anyway, back, what, actually on New Year's Day, she uh, she laid a clutch of 20 eggs. And um, wow. so I'm about, I'm about not, what, nine days away from, from day 50. <laughs> are you sleeping at all? Nice. I know, and that's why when everybody's like, hey, Joe, you didn't post anything on MVF, I was like, well, he's going to bust my chops because I haven't posted a thing. <laughs> I'm jinxing them right now. They're in the incubator <laughs> crashing, and um, I know that. And so anyway, yeah. Well, that's, well, that's, I, very, know, hopefully with, that, that's great. Hopefully with nine days left, and they're looking really great, hopefully they're headed toward uh, the finish line. So. Well, tell tell us how you're. Um, obviously, you're not using maternal incubation. So, how do you have your uh, egg box uh, set up in the incubator? How do you have your incubator set up, and and what uh, temperatures are you incubating at? Yeah, my incubator is a. Um, this will give me an opportunity to give some people some props, but uh, 
My incubator is right. a homemade wine box incubator with a false wall that I built myself and some computer fans. Um, I've started a thread on MDF that kind of details the construction of that. Mark actually kind of led me through and talked around ideas on that. And Mark's a calibration technician, as he's already said, and he led me through the process of buying some uh, temperature monitoring equipment on eBay and helped me pick out which one looked like a good deal. And, and then I had them nice. shipped to him, and he calibrated it all for me. And and so Mark's been a really good friend there. And so, yeah, my incubator's got a flute thermocouple on it, uh, and uh, calibrated by Mark, and um, I'm running it at 87.5, and I'm using Sims containers, although I do think that I am going to change gears and, and do something a little bit differently next year. I had a couple eggs dry out, and I ended up um, putting them on vermiculite, and with the size of the incubator, it's like how many more tubs can I put in there, and so to have these eggs on it, vermiculite and whatever. And so I think I'm going to go to a 15-quart tub, and that way I can have eggs inside it in a deli cup and actually just have a deli cup of vermiculite in that 15-quart container with them, and they can kind of musical chairs their way through that deli cup of vermiculite if need be. But, um, you know, again, I may just – the clutch may run smoother next time with more experience than I might not have one or two dry out and need that. So um, anyway, but yeah, so they're just in Sims containers. Um, I've got a couple of holes, I've got more than a couple drilled in them, but I've got a couple opened up with tape uh, right now on the tail end of the incubation. Uh, And they're just starting to dent and everything's real foggy and uh, and they look pretty good. You know, um, that's a big clutch. That's a big clutch, John. Did you have any uh, issues with windows in those eggs? I mean, I did. Um, yeah, and I hope that I hatched the. I, I lost two eggs early on, and I had four that got windows all together. Actually, I had a, bu- a bunch of them, really. That they were like little micro windows, and they were right in the yeah. snowflakes of thin calcification. Right. And in those it, Sims boxes, you know what I mean. Things are pretty tight in there, and um, and so I couldn't get the windows under control, and so I ended up opening up a lot of the ventilation on them, and that. To, to dry up the windows and it did get them under control, but um, I had to end up closing up a lot of the holes. And I don't know if you remember earlier when I said I had another technique that I called the Buscemi. I read a thread on the forum <laughs> about Buddy misting the inside of the incubator. And so I began to yeah. miss the inside of my incubator. And um, I don't know how much more surface area you can have. I mean, you can have a, a, a pan in the bottom, but, I mean, if you miss the entire interior of the incubator, you know, if that doesn't get them back hydrated, there's just really nothing other than vermiculite that will. I mean, that's got to be the maximum uh, surface area of water evaporating in the incubator. So, anyway, and that pulled them back, and, and they look great. And um, But I did have a couple that I put on vermiculite, two of which had the windows, and I ended up um, thinking, you know, when I dry these eggs out, the windows dry up. But when I put them back in the egg box, the windows come back. And so they need hydration, but they need to yet stay dry. And, you know, how am I going to do that? So I ended up taking deli cups and taking one and cutting a hole out of the center of it, but yet leaving it like a dome. And so it flipped upside down, or it was. They're back in the egg box now. I, they miraculously grabbed hold and and i think the embryo got happy or, or maybe there's a weird deformed snake in there and it's just alive and it will eventually die but 
But um, anyway, they got happy again, so they're back in the egg box. Time, I flipped a uh, deli cup upside down and made like a greenhouse dome, but yet the hole cut out. In the, so basically like sides, like shields, like a fence, like a fencing around that. And so anyway, the, the egg went into the deli cup, moist vermiculite underneath, hydrating it from underneath with its top essentially exposed with that little hoop surround of plastic kind of acting like a little bit of a wind baffle, but but leaving it basically mm-hmm. kind of with his little nose stuck up in the air. And that window dried up, and the eggs pumped right on back up to full, taut, little uh, oval beach balls. And um, and then once, you know, I tossed around, you know, should I put them back or should I not? You know, they, sure, they sure look nice where they're at. I don't want to mess them up. Anyway, I just made the call and put them back in the egg box, and they've been cooking just fine. Nice. We got our fingers crossed. Yeah, it was John. it was it was witch doctor stuff for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that's uh, that's what it takes with these things. Yeah, I mean, you know, had I just left them in the egg box just to ride, like a lot of people do, I, I, I these eggs would have died. I would, and I did lose two. Um, and these eggs may not have anything viable in them, but even if this technique does not save these eggs, I saw enough promising merit that I think applied over a larger number of, uh, of a sample size and, and it could be employed to, to turn some eggs around. It, it it made these look fantastic all over. Oh, and I used Elmer's glue on them too. So I Elmer's them and then did that open hmm. top expose underneath in vermiculite setup. Yep. Well, that's that's what I was going to ask about the glue in the windows and and that's yeah, I've done that before and it worked awesome. I, I had uh, uh, two years ago. I had a big clutch, twenty-four uh, egg clutch, and almost every single one of them had uh, windows on the um, uh, on the on the edges. You know, both edges mm. of the eggs. They just had these these uh, right. pretty small windows. I mean, not not huge, but uh, yeah, I uh, I Elmer glued them and they they all came through great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. Very nice. Mark, Mark, what about you? What about you, bud? You're a uh, strict maternal oh. incubation, right? No, no, I've never, uh, <laughs> never tried maternal. I, I'm, I don't have the the okay. guts for that. Yeah, no. and I, I've only produced. Yeah, yeah, I've only produced three clutches and two of those were from the same female and she's not real good about bumbling up the eggs afterwards. So, um, that probably would have been a disaster anyways, but yeah, yeah, I got you. You're joking. Uh, (laughs) I have to say, you know, hats off to John. I mean, that's, that's highly impressive. You know, all the thought that went into, to saving those eggs and everything. And that's a lot of really, really good, thinking went into that and, and you know I'm gonna have to you know I might have to get with him after the fact <laughs> if I ever have anything else to incubate again which unfortunately is not looking so good for the season but uh you know I I uh I mean as you guys know I, I have a converted wine fridge as well with a false wall um I run uh I think it's like a 12 by 24 inch strip of uh, flex watt in the back behind the, the wall. i got a couple fans in there. Um, you can adjust the speed on them. And uh, I I control it with a, a harp stat. I actually have a pretty 
fancy incubator out in the garage, but I never had a chance to use it. But it's actually, a, you know, Fisher Scientific, like lab grade, you know, self-contained mm-hmm. unit. But uh, I, I have not uh, drug it into the house yet, being that it's 300 plus pounds, and I don't think that I'm going to need it this year. But um, <laughs> you know, same same stuff. I mean, you know, artificial incubation. I run the Squamata Concepts. Uh, I have four of the, the small containers, and uh, I usually keep, uh, you know, I'll do the primary clutch in one container, and then I have the the uh, alternate container that'll be for questionable eggs or, you know, eggs that are receiving frequent treatment, so, you know, I'm not dumping all the heat out of my main batch. Um, I don't, I have never, I've never geared up breeding enough to where I would think it I'd have more than two clutches at a time so it seems to work for me but you know if I ever got to a point I think I would probably want to upgrade boxes or incubator size or you know something along those lines but um but yeah um you know things have gone pretty pretty decent overall I guess my first clutch I had some troubles with I was not running a schematic concepts and I had too much airflow in my egg box and I had poorly calcified eggs that, that John mentioned that had the little snowflakes on them and I had a you know I was, I was doing foot powder and glue and everything else and I mean they all just shriveled up looked like raisins you know and I brought I brought some of them back and I think I had a 21 eggs you know, this is not a good hatch rate. I think out of 21, I I may have hatched. I don't even recall. Look at my paperwork. Maybe you know, 11 or 12 of them, something like that. I don't. You know, I really don't recall at this time. But you know, lost a, a considerable amount of them, and and that was what you know got me looking into different types of uh, egg boxes and airflow within the chamber and running a wet chamber versus a dry chamber. Um, I do have everything set up running this year uh i had three females building follicles but uh it unfortunately seems to be a case of reabsorption in all three of them to this point um so i think it's just running in there for no reason but it it is running i'm running a, a dry chamber this year versus a wet chamber and uh you know with the the misting of a chamber if necessary you know i like that idea versus uh dealing with unnecessary condensation in the chamber if it's uh not needed with which with the uh sims boxes they are very very tight and uh you know i i really haven't had a issue with eggs drying out in those but i don't have any type of ventilation in those egg boxes aside from the uh thermocouple probe hole that's in the back so um you know, if I need to dry out those chambers, like towards the end of incubation or anything, I'll, I'll just do, you know, I'll prop open one side of it and, and let them air out as needed. I do think that one kind of important factor is that they do get some amount of fresh air throughout the incubation process, which has never been a problem for me because I like to open them up and take a peek and, you know, can't really hardly seem to leave them alone, even though I probably should. <laughs> but uh, I think I, I think cracking that lid, you know, get some fresh air in there, and, and I think it's very important, you know, versus just leaving them sealed airtight for fifty plus days. Mark, um, I think uh, not a, I think 
not to interrupt you, Mark, but I think that, you know, we've had a lot of people on um, the show and we've, we've discussed in- incubation techniques. And I would think, I would just say, and Buddy can correct me or, or put his comments in, that the vast majority of people, if they said that they had an incubation mistake and it involved humidity in the egg box, most people um, had not enough. In other words, they thought their eggs dried out as opposed to they got too humid and they molded because it was too wet in there. Um, I can just tell you just personal experience, um, now just with chondro eggs, but with carpet and ball python eggs, the majority of the issues that I've had have been um, egg boxes that have gotten too dry. And Buddy and I have talked about this a lot. You know, we and I think we both utilize the same. We keep a very, or at least I keep a very tight, tightly secured egg box with holes, some ventilation holes in them. But early on in the incubation period, those holes are sealed up by plastic tape because, yeah. um, you know, they they are not generating the heat. The moisture inside that tub is not accumulating on the lid until. Uh, towards the end of the incubation cycle and when that happens when i start to see a lot of condensation on the lid i'll remove the tape from the ventilation holes it'll get more ventilation and i'll remove the lid i'll wipe the lid down if it's getting excessive moisture uh in there but just me personally i can say i have lost many many more clutches of eggs due to lack of humidity in that egg box than excessive humidity for sure for sure i think too if if an egg is going to you know, be too, too humid or too wet or whatnot and start molding on you, the, the chances of that egg being bad to begin with are unbelievably higher than, you know, yeah. I, I don't think a good egg is ever going to mold on you. I just don't think it's going to happen. You know, but you, you toss an infertile egg in there and try and incubate it the whole way and, you know, 20, 30 days out and it starts developing mold you can put antifungal powder on it you can wipe it off you can yeah. do whatever you want it's going to keep coming back it's going to come back over and over yeah. it's probably a bad yep. egg you know no matter what you sure. do the egg's probably not going to hatch but if you're to lower the humidity in the egg box or crack the egg box thinking that the whole clutch is too wet would be probably a huge mistake because the rest of them are probably doing just fine and you're just you know you're you're troubleshooting based off of one egg. Which, right. You know, right. Not good. Bound for failure. Yeah. Joe, uh, listen, we should be asking you because you're the one. Um, well, I guess John does as well. He's, he's uh, just a few days away from um, sounds like hatching some awesome babies, but you just put some eggs in the incubator. And so what, what are you doing? What are you running? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. It's uh a fairly standard is a cabinet style incubator, uh, through some half inch foam around it, you know, just to let it run more efficiently, uh, hopefully a little more stable. Uh, but it's just, yeah, it's a, you know, I don't even know how big the tub is, but I'd say 12 or 15 quart Rubbermaid tub. Uh, I did add some, uh, weather stripping around the perimeter of the, uh, where the lid would go, the perimeter of the tub. Hmm. So the lid, when it, you know, it sits tight, it kind of compresses the uh, weather stripping, makes it a little tighter than uh, your standard Rubbermaid. Uh, I think Buddy did the same thing with his tubs or the incubator. I, 
I also put weather stripping around the perimeter of the actual incubator itself uh, to make sure the door seals, you know, so that there's no cool, dry air getting in, you know, to, 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 to mess with the main chamber. Um, right. And, yeah, you, I put a hole in each corner of the tub, and that way, and I fill it with, uh, you know, you guys put tape over it. I put some poster putty in there, and I can peel, you know, that putty off to open the hole. Um, you know, if it looks drier in one corner of the tub as opposed to the other, I can, you know, kind of adjust things that way. Um, I've got a glass thermometer, you know, stuck through a hole in the tub. Uh, James Gabriel sent me his. It's a lab-grade uh, calibrated thermometer. It's a pretty nifty thing. So that, that's what tells me what temperature it is in the tub. The probe itself uh, for the, uh, you know, the thermostat is outside the tub. It's in the main chamber. And there's about a uh, four, to, uh, I'm sorry, four-tenths of a degree difference between what I have the uh, thermostat set to and the actual temperature within the tub. So that's what that, uh, you, that really, go ahead. I was going to say, Joe, did you notice that temperature inside, inside the tub creeping up as, well, I guess you haven't had them, you haven't had them in there very long, have you? Uh, no, yeah, what, only three days? Them, yeah. So, okay. I mean, maybe you've measured other clutches, but you, obviously, you know, that temperature inside of that box is going to go up. Yeah. Yeah, it will, and, and it's also, I think, affected by the the humidity within the box that is not within the main chamber. The main chamber is dry. Uh, the, you yeah. know, the box has the humidity. I think that's going to mess with the temperature a little, and they're offset. The uh, What the thermostat is set to is not the temperature within the box. It's right. kind of similar to uh, where I have my probe set in my adult cages. It's against the rear wall. And it's only set yeah. to 80 degrees, but under the heat panel, it's considerably warmer. It's about four degrees warmer. Sure. So you, you have that offset, and you have to adjust the thermostat to allow for that. Um, that's why you fire up the incubator about six days before they lay, so you can tweak those things out. Uh, but but yeah, you, don't adjust, you don't adjust the main chamber of your... Um, incubator based on what the temperature inside the incubation chamber is right i mean you you 87.5 you just leave it there you're not manipulating the the temperature of that of the incubator are you uh if i have to i mean it, whatever the thermometer is reading i want that mm -hmm. thermometer to read 87 i go a little low about 87.3 i'd rather i'm a hair cool than hot um might okay. add an extra day to the incubation, but, uh, you know, they're, they're far more sensitive to too much heat than too little within reason. Right. Um, so whatever the thermometer is telling me, that's what I base my setting on the thermostat to. Why don't you just, if you're going to do that, why don't you just put your thermostat probe inside the egg box? Because I think the humidity, it, it seems to mess with the probe. Uh, from what okay. I was seeing, I was seeing, you know, at one time I had the thermostat probe and the thermometer in the egg box at the same time, two different holes, yeah. but, you know, set at the exact same, you know, within half an inch of each other. And I noticed the thermostat kind of, it was getting too high for my liking. 
And so the uh, and I and I attributed that to the humidity inside the box, messing with things. I don't okay. know, but the pro being I in say, the main chamber. Go ahead. Uh, well, I say that only because it is not uncommon for me to have fifteen clutches in my incubator, and so I keep my my incubator chamber the same, eighty-seven point five. But if I measured the temperature in individual egg boxes, it could be a degree or two degrees different. In other words, a clutch that's laid on day one might be 87.5, but a chondro clutch getting ready to pip in two days, you know, could be a full degree or degree and a half higher than that. And it, it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, that's what they do there. It's an, it's an exothermic reaction. Those eggs are, you know, they're incubating, and at the very end of that cycle, they're putting off heat. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the the location of, you know, uh, different points, uh, different areas of the incubator are going to be hotter than others. Uh, you know, top shelf, bottom shelf, uh, in relation, you know, to the fan and everything else. Yeah. Uh, Lynn, I'll, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it, when I get 15 clutches going at once. <laughs> but uh, Listen, listen, I'll incubate. I'll incubate carpet pythons, green tree pythons, and ball pythons all in the same incubator at the same time. Okay, but yeah, and they're at different stages of incubation. Different stages, yeah, you bet. So how do you manage that that fluctuation? You you've got your probe in the main chamber. You have right, to. and I don't care. I, I don't care what the egg box is doing. I don't care if it's. 87.5 or 89 degrees in the egg box. As long as that main temperature is a, is a consistent 87.5, those those clutches all do well. Hmm. This is this was a big well, debate they, when they, you know, when they first started, and I think um, Buddy knows the history better than I do. But when they first, you know, started, um, you know, I think Greg Maxwell and Trooper, they initially you know, after they started doing the cycling where they would actually try to, uh, I don't know, buddy, fill me in. They would start temperature, you know, they would do a different, they'd start the temperatures lower and then they'd increase them. And then at the end, they try to lower the, um, the egg box temperatures. That was before the kind of the state, the, the straight bake theory came into existence, but they were monitoring egg box temperatures. Is that right? Right there. They were actually monitoring the egg shell temperature, so the thermocouple shell probe was, yeah. yeah, was on the was wedged between eggs. So they were actually measuring um, the egg shell, the egg temp, and so they were trying to manipulate the egg shell based on some research that had been done, which you know obviously makes sense. The eggs are laid, the female starts the incubation process, the temperature takes a week or two to spike, and then the last week or so, she Let's the uh, eggs cool off a bit, um, which I don't really know anyone that does that anymore. Uh, because if if you use a, a thermocouple probe that wasn't properly calibrated, the egg was sensitive. The eggs were sensitive enough. If you overshot the hotter part, you would kill the eggs, and a lot of people had problems with it because they weren't properly calibrating their equipment. And the other thing came into um, play was if you did have two clutches and they weren't laid exactly within a few days of one another, 
it was different. You couldn't do two clutches in the same incubator. We're using the eggshell surface temperature um, incubation, and uh, a lot of people just went to the straight bake uh, temperature using the main chamber. Um, and there were people. Uh, now, when I initially did condors, I, I actually uh, used a coolibator that I'd used for many years with other stuff and. Having only one clutch of condors, I actually put the the probe in the egg box and um, had a fan hook to the to the heating element. So when I opened the incubator, so when the incubator was up to temp, the fan didn't run. So the egg box was really steady. But when I opened the egg box or they opened up the incubator, the temperatures dropped, and so the fan would kick on until the temperature got back up. But what you would see is what kind of what Joe was saying is you would see like a fluctuation where if you monitored the the incubator temp, it would be much higher than the egg box temp until they equalized out. And sometimes I'd actually have to like crack the lid of the cooler baiter to keep it from actually overshooting the egg box temp. Um, uh -huh. That's why eventually I went to the main chamber temp. I just thought it was safer. Uh, you know the the egg box wouldn't overshoot if I open the incubator using the main chamber temp, and that that's what I'm finding. And and I trust the thermometer more than the probe, the thermostat probe. Right. So yeah, right. If, yeah. if the thermometer's holding steady at you know 87.3 to 87.5, I'm fine with that. Even if the uh, the probe, you know, or the the thermostat itself is you know, higher than that, 87.8 or so. But when I had the thermostat probe in the egg box, it was it was just, it would get up to, you know, 89 degrees. I'm sorry, not 89, 88 degrees. And it would get down as far as, you know, 87. And right. It was, just, it was just really mysterious. So I, when I put the, as soon as I, and again, I just thought it was the humidity screwing with things. Um, but as soon as I put the probe in the main chamber, and the everything stabilized, you know, within right. hours. Yeah, yeah. Well, Greg Stevens called that the tidal wave. He would call it the tidal wave effect. So if you have your if you have your probe in the um, egg box, you know, it's it's you know a smaller, more isolated chamber, so temperatures aren't going to change as quickly. In that small egg box, they would in the main chamber because you have, you have a fan flowing, even though the egg box is itself isolated from that airflow. But so you know, it's, the the main chamber temp has to go up higher in order to bring the main temp, main chamber temp. I'm sorry, the egg box temp to the main chamber temp. So you got this slow fluctuation back and forth until they were really consistent. Um, so yeah, that that's exactly what what Joe's describing is the the overshooting of the egg box temp because the main chamber getting way too hot to try to bring the the egg box to where it needs to be, and of course the egg box has egg box has water in it which you know holds that energy that heat energy, so it's slower to warm up and then slower to cool down. So you're going to get that constant fluctuation inside the egg inside the uh, the egg box while the main chamber may stay pretty steady. And, and that's something, my first couple clutches, I had, it, it was, uh, I put them on substrate. I actually used Hatchrite and uh, mm -hmm. had the probe in the box 
resting on the egg, almost taking the surface temperature of the egg. Um, right. And it did far, it did fairly well. Uh, this is a whole other animal, you know, with uh, like with the water in there, as was mentioned. You know, it. Uh, I don't know. I just. Uh, I'm happy with what the therm the thermometer is reading. Right. Yeah, that's yeah, yep, absolutely. If that's consistent and it's the temperature that you want, that's what's most important. Yes, sir. All right. Um, gosh, buddy, uh, what do what do we want to hit on next? Um. I know. I, Bill and I had an interesting discussion uh, a couple months ago. Have you guys seen the the Repti, Reptilinks uh, oh, yeah. that are on the market? Yeah. Have you guys ever thought about trying that for for chondros, or would you try it for chondros, or like you know establishing babies or feeding your adults? I think you know, for what we know about pinky mice and how crappy they are, you know. For the diet, um, thinking about trying those reptilinks, uh, you know, to start babies. Um, you know, I remember Bill had mentioned, you know, the possibility of them getting addicted to the reptilinks and being hard to switch back to rodents um, and so forth. And, and that's a valid concern. Um, I wanted to try them just to try to get them through to that, you know, fuzzy mouse stage to a, you know, something with some fur, something with some bone density. You know, maybe even keep track of things and see if the babies that are on the reptilinks do better uh, growth-wise uh, than babies on pinkies. Uh, something I'm really interested in trying. I don't see the harm in trying it. Mark, John, what do you think? think? Well, if you're if you're going to ask me. Um, I, I like the idea of other people trying it and me sitting back and seeing how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm very interested, but I don't know that, Truth. that I'm ready to try it myself. I guess I don't know enough about them. I've never seen one uh, in the you know the smallest size they make. Um, you know, I had asked about how do they you know they thaw out in water. As I understand it, there's a like a I don't know if it's a wax or some kind of membrane. It's not in a casing, like the the larger size ones are in an actual uh, animal casing. Uh, the smaller ones are not. They're in some sort of hmm. I, I don't know I don't even know how to put it. But they're they're held together by something. So how would those hold up to being thawed? How would those hold up to constriction? I mean, are they just going to squeeze these things into you know liquid? I'm going to make this discussion very easy because I have tried them, and I think in concept they are a phenomenal idea. Um, I tried recently; they came out with the um, the version that is frog and lizard uh, scented or prepared, and I thought, man, that's this is going to be awesome for chondros. And right. I had uh, I had a poor feeding neonate that um, you know I could not get established. Uh, cis fed him many times, um, and I tried a reptilink on him. One of the ones that was frog, uh, you know, uh, produced from frog parts, and he had no interest in it. 
And um, I so I then tried to feed because I bought a package of them. I then tried to feed them to several of the other my other condors that were established and eating great. And they struck at it fantastically, but they were so soft they literally just mushed it. They hit it and they just mushed it. And when they 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 tried to wrap it and it just it was like a a watery stool, a watery shit that just went everywhere, and they couldn't they couldn't eat it. Um, yeah, so that, that was my concern. I, I mean, I guess you pretty much shot down the whole idea there was that yeah, well these things hold up being constricted, and uh, yeah, it sounds I, like they won't. They do not, and um, they have another product that is actually a liquid frog scent that. I again I tried it on um on a frozen pink head on this animal that I was trying to get established it ultimately didn't get established uh he had no interest in it but I I was much more interested in, and we'll try that in the future um versus the um the reptilinks themselves for 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 hatchlings it's a frog scented uh, liquid that you could just apply to a warmed up pinky or pinky head and uh, I would, I'm, I'm going to definitely uh, be involved in, in trying that on stubborn feeders in the future. But the rink, reptilink themselves, at least for the neonates, I, unless they, unless they're very, very gentle eaters and they just open their mouth and take it and not try to wrap it, it's just not going to happen. See, and, and that was my ideal, Bill. Not necessarily to get stubborn feeders to to eat, but to get you know regular yeah. feeders. A, a more nutritious yeah, better, meal. Better meal, sure. Better, absolutely. Right. Yeah, and better I, than a pinky. I, but. Yeah, and I think by far they are nutritionally a thousand times better than a pinky. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure. But just not practical. Well, I, I don't know. You know, I, I, maybe you could, you know, mush it onto a pinky or something. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm just giving you, you know, one person's experience with them. Right, sure. right. Well, and that's what's great, you know. Here we are, and about the whole, the whole group, you know, it just like John said, sharing ideas, kicking around ideas, techniques. Uh, you know, this is how we get better. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, and I think there's a big uh, market for reptilinks. I think. Um, you know, in, in adult animals, because um, I think, Joe, you said it's definitely a different casing. It's a much more solid um, presentation to a meal, and they can strike that thing and wrap it and still eat it. Because I've seen them, I've seen adults do it. You know, it, it is a great idea, these reptilinks, you know, because how many, how many kids can't have a snake because their parents don't want to feed mice and, sure. you know, have to buy yep. mice and so forth, and and these reptilings, you can say, hey, no, no, they have these, you know, preformed, these little sausages. All you got to do is warm them up, you know, even for, for ball pythons, carpets, you know, anything. Anything that will take them, you know, it might, yeah. uh, it, it could get, you know, a lot, lot, lot of people more accepting to have a pet snake, which is, they're great oh, pets. Right. Yeah. Right. No, no a- absolutely. Uh, uh, I think the appeal of reptilings to me is that you can, you can vary the diet. Like you can feed, you know, a rodent reptilink. You can feed a mix of, you know, quail and rodent, or you can, you know, 
one had, you know, uh, they use, you know, and they use food grade animals too, which is nice. So they you know, they use you know bullfrogs and as for the for the frog stuff. Um, so you can add, you, know, you can add variation to the diet. And the other thing too is that um, they also make one. It's like rodent and insect. Not that you know these snakes don't eat insects, and you know, but you know a lot of what they eat in the wild eats insects. So I wonder if you know occasionally offering that as a as a way just to vary the diet. Um, is you know it, just to me it's it's intriguing to be able to, to to see that and do that and and uh, you know change things up every once in a while. I know I'm I've got uh, I've had a couple clutches this year and these are first time females and I've I've kind of feel the eggshell quality on them isn't what I was expecting from you know a four or five year old snake that's never been bred before and. The only thing I can think of it's you know it's is it nutritional and if it's nutritional that that's back on me and these animals at least in my in my care have all been raised on one rodent supplier and I'm thinking you know you know I've I've never really seen what this uh, rodent supplier is using or or what he's feeding his reptiles my you know the, my animals at least appear healthy on the outside but is it not are they missing something in the diet that's, you know, obviously maybe calcium levels or what they use to absorb the calcium with? Are they, are they missing that? So I'm looking at other things like, okay, maybe I need to vary up. Maybe, you know, maybe I need to add some poultry to there, some quail, or maybe these reptilinks. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's a neat idea. I, I'm glad to see them. I guess uh, one thing that we haven't hit on before, um, we're, we're running over, and it's it's late for me and it's later for you guys on the East Coast. Uh, what about the condor market in the U.S.? Um, what are your guys' thoughts on, you know, where it's going, um, if it's stable, uh, how much competition imported stuff is having to perhaps animals that you're producing and are trying to sell. John, why don't you start? (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe you would just want to see what somebody else says. Did we lose you, John? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, okay. Okay. Hello? Sorry, I, yeah. I uh, yeah, I'm here. Sorry. Um Okay. Nope. <laughs> yeah, no, I had the phone muted and then I didn't know that it was on un- it unmute there. So I, I do that all the time. I do that all the I do that all the time. Yeah. I was, I was talking and I was talking and I was not getting what I thought would be a normal response, so um, yeah, no, I think the, the condor market is, is in great shape. I think the, I think that middle of the market stuff uh, has a little bit tougher time. Um, I think the that four or five hundred dollar animal range is is got a huge need. Um, yeah. 
And then I think that uh, obviously the ultra high end, it doesn't seem to have um, as much, um, you know, it's just so limited as far as what's being produced and, and that kind of thing. And people are, you know, if they want what they want and the pairing is desirable, you know, that kind of stuff. But some of that middle yeah. of the range stuff, um, you know, and and then people hold out and it starts color changing and stuff like that. And so um, I just think that they say, well, I could get something similar for either less or, hey, if I saved a little bit more, I could get something a little bit higher in. And so, it's just that tipping point, but um, but yeah, so yeah, yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a great assessment. I I I would agree with that 100. percent Right. Yeah. Mark, what about you? I think uh, I, you know I, I've never bought anything ultra high end like John speaks of there, but it seems to do pretty well. I think people know what they're after, and you know, and obviously. Very well educated on what they're about to to do and whatnot, so you know that that market kind of regulates itself to some degree. Um, I, you know, as far as the stuff that I've sold, I compete more along the lines with wild caught, farm bred stuff, and you know it, it's I don't say it's bad because I've sold everything I've ever listed, and, and I can't say that I I didn't get a good price out of it but you know i know what i've put into my animals getting them going and raising them up and yep to, to some Boy, degree yeah. and it, it's yep. i'll just leave it at this it is frustrating when you see a quote-unquote captive bred animal you know of the same locality sell for that or more than what you know you sold yours for ship that you know I mean, I, I, I've, I've, uh, I've had, you know, I had one animal die in shipping, replaced it for free, um, you know, just a freak situation. Um, I've, you know, I can't even count the amount of hours that I've done after sales support and that kind of stuff. And, and I think it's important that, that, that breeders do that. And I think that's one of the things that's really hard to convey to, to new time keepers is how, you know, beneficial that can be, you know, it's essentially a, a warranty. It's a, you know, after sales support is, it's everything you need, you know, your one-stop shop. And it's, it's hard when you, when you see the stuff sell for, you know, what you, you sold it for, or potentially, you know, in my case, you know, many times even more. So it it is very difficult in that segment of the market, um, you know, and, and, Outside of, and I'm speaking more or less, you know, yellow locality neos here. You know, that's that's your probably your entry level, or or locality right. cross of sure. yellow neo. Um, you know, red neos I think are a little less subject to that. But even then, you do still see a lot of farm bred stuff come in. That, that you know it. I think it's probably just a, a supply and demand thing. I mean, it'd be nice if we could all, you know, meet the supply that the the U.S. market requires, and and you know, kind of. Uh, and and I don't think it's a bad thing that these you know animals are coming in. I think it's a bad thing that they're collected out of the wild. But you know, as far as bushmaster animals, I'm all for them. I think they're a great thing. You know, I've got a lot of bushmaster stuff here that's doing well, and and. Uh, 
and I've used it to produce animals. And I think it's a great thing to have that come in. But, um, you know, if we could cut down on, on uh, you know, a lot of the, the wild harvesting of critters and whatnot and the, the wandering and, and stuff, and be able to supply that market and be able to do it for what we feel is, you know, a reasonable fee for the, the work and the sales and everything, it would be a, a great thing. But it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a more difficult end of the spectrum, you know, for me and, and where I've, I've dabbled for the most part. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that makes sense. And obviously, um, you know, one of our buddy and I, you know, long before the show got started, we sat down and said, listen, there are some, there are some things, some goals that we want for this program. And one of them was to um, promote primarily to new keepers, but really across the board, you know, the purchasing of captive bred animals and that and that's for a lot of different reasons we don't need to go into um at this point but um you know i I think that i think you you nailed it exactly there's a big niche for those entry level animals and the uh the ones that are captive bred with good customer support are going to encourage the new keeper um as opposed to the keeper that gets an animal that's farm bred and shipped from Indo or is more likely really, even though it's claimed to be farm bred, it's a captive or it's a, it's an imported wild caught animal. They're not going to do well with that. And that's, you know, that's our first experience and it's going to be a bad one. It's going to put a bad taste in their mouth and then they're going to move on. And they probably have lost a great opportunity to get to know an animal that we're all very passionate about. So you know, I think yeah. you just need to keep doing doing what you're you know doing what you're doing. You, there's no reason, and I think it'll get even better in the future for you to have to think that a bushmaster animal or uh, uh, you know uh, an animal from an imported you know uh, an imported Indo animals is going to compete with your captive bred animals because they they're not and they shouldn't. Well, you know, it, it's another thing that makes chondros unique is that, you know, when they're sold at a young age, first of all, you don't know what they're going to look like as an adult. Second, you don't even know uh, what gender they are. You know, you yeah. don't know if it's a male or female. Um, you know, there's USA captive born and bred available almost all the time uh, for the same amount of money that a uh, – you know, an imported animal is. Uh, it's, it's just about hammering, you know, and educating the, these, uh, you know, potential buyers to, you know, it, you just, it'll never stop, you know. Convincing people, yeah. educating people to buy the USA captive bread, that it's worth it to spend an extra hundred bucks, hundred and a half, if they have yeah. to. Um, you know, people are gun shy about, you know, buying neonates because they don't know what they're going to end up with. You don't want to spend a bunch of money on something that's going to turn solid green, maybe, even though that's what attracted us to the species to begin with. Um, right. I don't know. It's just it's one more thing that makes these snakes unique. Is you just, I don't know. You don't know what you're getting uh, unless you buy an adult. 
or you know a, a, cha- a changed one, which you're going to spend more because it's already changed. It's just it, it's tricky, and uh, yeah. you know new people uh, don't understand that, and that's why it's you know our job to to let them know. Amen. Joe, what about you? Um, you think you're going to be able to sell any of those any of those uh, babies that you don't want to keep back? Uh, probably not. <laughs> Why? Because you're going to price them too much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're going to price yourself out of the market. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's another thing. Uh, you know, how much is how much are your chondros? Well, it depends on which one you want and how much I like it. Exactly. Uh, you know, but uh, I'll sell you one, Bill. <laughs> we'll, better hey, we'll do trade on it. I'm, you better give me a good deal. I'm a repeat customer. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, like I said, we'll do trade. We'll we'll figure out trade. I like that sickness you got over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll think about it. I'll give you two for one. <laughs> Uh, listen, I've had a lot of beer tonight. You might talk me into it. <laughs> All right, guys. This is um this is one of the longest shows we've ever had. Uh it's been yeah. awesome. Yep, very good show. Uh, great, great. Thanks there, for having us. <laughs> yeah, is there anything anybody else wants to say? You know, we always like to give the opportunity um, to throw your info out there as far as contact. If um, if you have a website, if you have a Facebook page, uh, email, you know, whatever you want to do. Um, we've introduced uh, all of the listeners to your guys' names. Um, so before we tune it off, anybody want to give out any other info, go for it. I'm not that yeah. hard to find. Yeah, me neither. So. Yeah. Okay. Bunch of recluses, huh? Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, I don't have no website, no nothing. I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> blurt my opinions here and there on social media, and that's about it. So. All right. <laughs> Very good. Very good, gentlemen. Can't thank you enough, again, uh, enough for you guys to uh, be on with us and, and take your – Take your valuable time to uh, share your knowledge with us and, and with our listeners. We appreciate it. Yep. Nice you guys are doing a great right. thing. You Thank too. you. Mark and Joe, both nice talking to you all. Yeah, Thank good you. to finally hear your voice. Huh? Uh, hope to see you. <laughs> be nice to see all of you at Tinley Park in October. I'll be there. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try. Um, I'm shooting I'm going for to try to come. Me and, uh, me and Rocky were talking about it, so we may try and plan a trip up. Bill's going to have a right, jet fly from Texas to Maryland and then uh, fly <laughs> me over to uh, the Chicago area. I thought Trooper was going to pick us both up. Oh, even better. <laughs> All right. All right. Bill's perfect, a little bit out of the way. Thank you so much. <laughs> good night. Yeah. yeah good night, guys. Bye. Yeah. Have a good one. Well, Bill, that was a pretty good show.
You there, buddy? You there? Yeah, Bill, you here? All right, well, we lost Bill, so I'll close up the show. Thanks for listening to GTP Keeper Radio. This was the February 12, 2017 edition with John Irby, Joe Janovitz, and Mark Huffman. Please stay tuned. We have some upcoming shows. One will be talking about blue chondros, and um, we're working on another episode with another vet. So we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. See you on the next issue. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.